Welcome to System Mastery, the podcast where we beat 100 dead horses into the ground, 100 d6 damage at a time. Heck yeah! Today, we discuss D&D, 3rd Edition, the 800-pound gorilla in the RPG industry, which would make it a huge gorilla, which would give it a plus 8 grapple check adjustment check should it attempt to reach out and grab you, which will negatively adverse your concentration roll to cast bail for polymorph, and you know what? It's System Mastery. gonna do this john i mean we've done the same way we do everything jeff poorly <laughs> we've done seven ogl game episodes so far that's right seven I, I, seven of them it, and and this is this is just ogl this is what the ogl this is where it came from this is the spawning ground from from which the, those fetid creatures would emerge oh yeah this is the ooze this is the primordial garbage ooze that gave us <laughs> What, X-Crawl, uh, Testament, Aberrant, EverQuest, D20 Modern, D20 Modern, Urban Arcana, and uh, uh, Dinosaur Planet, Bronchosaurus Rex. Yep. Out of out of this spawned so many things. It's, it's difficult, really, to, uh, like, once again dip into this. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we're looking at the bones of the first human this time, <laughs> instead of, you know, your Piltdown Mans and Manfred Mans and what have you. This is I, your your Australopithecus Africanus <laughs> Afarensis. I uh, it's the missing link. Anyway, we should probably actually introduce the show. Hi, folks. I'm Jeff. I'm the host of this great here system mastery type show that everyone loves so much. Yeah, it's a good thing we got to introduce ourselves here on the 100th episode. I'm e sure that people are just coming in for this because it's 3.x. <laughs> you know the rules. Every episode is someone's first episode. True facts, especially when it's this one. Yeah, and uh, joining me, Jeff, the host, the best one of the two of us, uh, is the other one, John. John yeah. is John, John is the worst host. The worst host, but still a host, so at yeah. least you got that going for you. I'm the host with the ghost. You're the host with the most Ghostbusters merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> John. Yeah, that's that's my claim to fame. The the host with the most Ghostbuster merchandise of the two of us. <laughs> you have slightly more Ghostbusters stuff than I do. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, John, I don't have any. Yeah, well, there you go. So if you have even one piece of Ghostbusters stuff... Well, I own both of the DVDs for Ghostbusters 1 and 2. There, there so is. there we go. You've earned it, John. You've earned your claim to fame. You don't have Ghostbusters... What's it, what do they call it to separate it? Answer the call or something like that? What do you mean? Yeah, the, when the uh, the girl Ghostbusters, when they re-released it on... Or, sorry, when they released it onto DVD... They gave it a new name, did so as they? to yeah, they did. So as to differentiate it from the other Ghostbusters DVD, huh. I think it's called "Answer the Call Ghostbusters." It's called "Answer Your Telephone." <laughs> I mean, the name is. I mean, I guess it's because of who you're gonna call. Who are you? I mean, who are you going to call in this situation when ghosts have attacked and one of them is a dancing, sexy Chris Hemsworth? <laughs> who, well, who no indeed? One. I'm not gonna call anyone if <laughs> that's know, happening. This is going great for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I might just put it on YouTube, but. <laughs> Man, I loved Chris Hemsworth in that movie so much. I don't care about any of the controversy, about any of the, uh, it wasn't quite as funny as Dan Aykroyd, derp -a -der. 
Chris Hemsworth was amazing. Uh, yeah, it's a good thing that this is what we're doing with our 100th episode. <laughs> people don't want us to do things new. This is what we've done for the previous 99. Yeah, people showing up for the 100th episode extravaganza where we finally talk about D&D 3.x, and here we are talking about fucking Ghostbusters 2016. <laughs> Fine. So Dungeons & Dragons 3rd Edition. Uh, came out around 2001. I did no research so as to figure out when exactly it came out, but I think that's about right. <laughs> that's probably close enough. Whatever. Uh, it is the third iteration, sort of, in that there are like a million iterations between each version of Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah. In the long and famous Dungeons & Dragons series of role-playing games, the one that your grandparents have heard of. Yeah. Uh, third edition Dungeons & Dragons is sort of the... What do you want to call it? I guess it's kind of, like we were saying earlier, it really is kind of the primordial swamp from which modern gaming expectations started to emerge. Well, one of the things that uh, when we were discussing this before we got on the mic, uh, I was talking about is there are so many opinions and things written about this and just a lot of stuff has to do with third ed mostly because of the OGL, the open game license, where they let people use these rules for other games. And it meant that not only did D&D, who is known for having a shitload of splats for its books, or at least 2nd uh, Ed and 3rd Ed did, but also you had all of these third-party companies making books, plus people making their own games using the rules, and then because that's compatible, you could go look at that and bring it into your own game. And basically what happened was anybody who had a computer could make a third edition D&D supplement if they wanted. Their own whole new game written in the same engine system. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the quality of gaming, basically at that time, experienced a sudden and extremely sharp decline uh, because of all these people who were just writing fly-by-night whatevers and setting them in the D20 license because they didn't need to do a lot of work to take the engine. Yeah. So all of a sudden you had all these like Doctor Who games and shit, and it was just, uh, uh, or horrible, horrible D&D supplements. Yeah. Like, hey, did you feel like your game didn't have enough shit about bone-ripping necromancers that are fucking buxom maidens? <laughs> Here's the bone-ripping necromancers fucking buxom maidens supplement. Only fourteen ninety nine at game whatever. Ga game, game whatever. Game, game world. Game town. Ga come to game whatever. I was going to say GameStop, and then I was like, they wouldn't carry that. That doesn't make no. any sense. That's not a good gag. Game go. But, but game whatever, that's a great place to go. The And the other thing about it is right around this time is when you really started seeing, uh, like especially with D&D, but a lot of other companies getting into the whole online support for their stuff. Uh-huh. So unlike previous editions of D&D &D or any other role-playing game, really. Like, this came with a character creator for it that was actually, you know, useful. Yeah, like a DVD strapped to the back of the book, just like, uh, you know, The Great War of Magellan. You know, because everyone's read and heard of and owns The Great you War know, of Magellan. The, the other very popular game, aside from D&D, &D, The Great War of Magellan. One of the many games that we've covered that had a DVD strapped to the back of the book. It's Great War of Magellan, uh, this, and Ravenstar, I want to yeah, say. Yeah, but with this, you got not just the character creator, but now you could go online and... Find full uh, like lists of all of the spells, all of the feats, all of whatever. So now it wasn't just, sure, there are a million splat books, but we only bought two of them, so that's what we have to use. Now, even if your gaming group didn't go out and buy everything, 
all of a sudden players had access to all of these random nonsense bullshit things. So what this is, is effectively kind of the genesis of what a lot of people now take for granted in uh, RPG tabletop design, which is designing your character for his entire career before you ever play him at all. Yeah, the... I mean, like, you could kind of do that in other games. Well, because you could do it in second edition easily, because it didn't fucking matter. Oh, yeah. You'd be like, my character is a elf ranger, uh, so every level he gets whatever elf rangers get at that level. Yeah, it didn't matter back then, because... Most of the time, like if you're talking, say, second ed, uh, you are not going to be doing much in the way of like multi-classing or dual classing. Maybe if you were a human, you'd do that. But you'd go, all right, I picked a race for the thing that race can do. So I'm a halfling rogue because halflings aren't screwed by being rogues. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to do that. And this is what I get every level. I don't need to plan anything out really skill points don't particularly matter and there's not a lot i'm really needing to plan no in second edition i believe it was players who were screwed by being rogues yes indeed not not halflings if i if i if i remember correctly and I, i think it was 50 episodes ago but no it was 25 25 episodes ago but i think i remember clearly what i don't remember is how many episodes ago it was <laughs> so all right uh so yeah, basically, one of the things that we did in preparation for this episode, out of kind of a concern that everyone already knows everything about 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons, is we opened this up to our fans on Twitter and said, Twitter, what do you want to hear from us about 3rd edition D&D? Yeah, and, there's, uh, there's so much that could be talked about with 3rd edition. So we'll start right here, because it's a good point, for at Monkey Pie Quinn, who you would know as the DM of our Gamma Crawl X actual play podcast, that's Quinn. And Quinn starts us off today by saying, I would like to hear about the overwhelming design orientation around ivory tower design, trap options, and necessitating planned characters through 20th level. Which, yeah, yeah right there. That's what we were just talking about. Exactly. So, from the very beginning, 3rd edition D&D kind of opened a Pandora's box to characters of, you have to plan your character this way when you're starting out, when you're making choices, so that you get these kind of reward options further down the line. Well, the big thing was... Feats showed up in mm-hmm. third edition, and now you had all of these things that you got a bunch of. I mean, especially if you were, say, a fighter or a wizard that was getting the meta magic ones. Sure. But a lot of the feats had prerequisites, things like that. So beforehand, you might have been like, oh, I'm a fighter and I don't really care about dexterity because I'm wearing heavy armor, so I don't really get the dex bonus to my AC. Uh, so I'm just gonna, you know, pump my strength and my con and, you know, carry let a the long others... sword and a shield. And I'm, I'm only carrying a long sword because most magical swords are long swords. Oh yeah. But now you're looking at it and going, well, I do want to get the feat that lets me, uh, like whirlwind attack and things like that. But it required like a dexterity of 13. Yeah. So now you had to actually care. And it, ha- it was like the fourth feat in a chain of four feats. So you had to take all these other feats as you were leveling up so that at a certain point you would hit the level where you could take the whirlwind attack so you could get this achieved reward. And the game became incredibly arcane and complicated with this with the introduction of the prestige class, which was a whole new crazy thing. So a prestige class was like, and and I feel like we're we're so preaching to the world choir here. Oh, yeah. We've skipped over the very basics of what third edition Dungeons and Dragons are. I mean... We can we can go back. We'll and circle do it. back, but yeah. basically, when you're a higher level character, prestige classes are classes you can multi class into, 
if you achieve certain requirements. So, for example, if you wanted to be a uh, an assassin, you you had to have certain levels of backstab from the rogue class, uh, a base attack bonus of a certain amount, uh, some skills in various skill options, and once you hit that point, usually around fifth level of rogue, if you were trying hard, you could say, "All right, my next level is not going to be rogue; it's going to be assassin, a whole new class only available at this kind of high level." where I get some special abilities that are based around uh, uh, being an assassin. You can't luck into these prestige classes. I mean, you can, because there's, I mean, there's essentially an unlimited number of them. Yeah, there there are things you could just sort of, oh, well, this is uh, requirements that I'm obviously going to have going down whatever path I do. Because yeah. there were ones, especially for, say, uh, the caster classes for a wizard or a cleric, it's like, what do you need? Uh, X spell levels of casting... And, you know, ranks in either divine or, or arcane or whatever. Yeah. And, and it and was going to be shit you had anyway, so you could get into them. It was possible to luck into several of them, but it was never the intention. This game was basically the first time where people were like, when you're making your level one character to start a brand new D&D game, you need to stop and think, what am I doing at level seven? Yeah. What's the point of this character? And that that's what kind of turned to this ivory tower design where every character build was easily optimized. It was, you know, part third edition's basic design concept, part the introduction of feats, and part the fact that it was the first game to really, or first Dungeons and Dragons, I should say, to really take advantage of the internet. Yeah, and you also had, uh, as one of the other parts of this question was, the whole trap options and ivory tower thing is you couldn't just take things that seemed interesting. Like, if I look at the feat list... There's stuff like, say, languages that lets me speak some extra languages. Okay, great. That does basically nothing for me in the game, and there's not really any prestige class that requires it. There's not, it doesn't chain into anything else. So even if I look at something and go, well, this seems interesting, it, it wasn't really something that was going to give you an option in game. Same thing with some of the options that seemed good but weren't like particularly toughness. amazing yeah toughness is one of the more famous examples of that it's it's uh three extra hit points which sounds like a lot when you're a low-level wizard or something and you're like wow i have four hit points this feat gives me seven hit points that's i can take a whole hit from a short sword and then when you realize that at high level it doesn't matter at all yeah. but you still have this crappy feat and uh, that was that was the thing with a lot of them is you had to look at because you're planning your character from like level one to twenty or at least level 1 to 10 for most of them, you had to look at your feats and what you're gathering and decide, is this a thing that's going to help me at high levels, or is this going to be something that once I hit like level 8, I look at it and go, man, this is just taking up room on my sheet. It was basically an early example of uh, people c creating a system where fun flavor options shared space with vital and necessary combat options. Yeah, so uh, you would be looking at something and you're like, okay, well, I need to get power attack because I need to also have cleave and this and that, and I need mobility and I need whatever. But I also want this feat that indicates that my character grew up in a fishing village and thus gets plus two to knowledge, small villages, and fishing. Yeah. Which, you know, the two things don't really line up especially well. So that's one of the problems that you had in the game. I mean, we may as well get into a quick 
discussion of what the game mechanics actually are for anyone listening to this that doesn't know, which is probably no one. (laughs) It doesn't matter. If we don't do it, we're going to get so many emails. So many emails. We're going to get one emails. All right. So it's a Dungeons and Dragons game. You have three stats or six stats ranging from three three stats, mind, body, and soul. Yeah. Okay. So, and then you're going to have to choose between a sailor senshi scout. Yeah, so a robot or a dinosaur that is already dead and is living in its own hell dimension. God, how is anyone not picking that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Six stats ranging between three and eighteen. They are strength, con- constitution, dexterity, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. Go to hell if you don't know these things already. Go to a dungeon. Yeah, the uh, third edition did put out much stronger recommendations that you. Use a point buy system or a an array, or use forty six drop low, which is the default one. In, in at least, here's something you should probably know going into this: we only have one copy each of the two editions, and so we just took we just took one each. So John read three I read three point five. Yeah, uh, but in three point five at least, it just it says like, hey, you can use these arrays or these point buys. A lot of people like to do forty six drop low, arrange the way you like. Yeah, so y- you end up with uh, six stats ranging between three and eighteen. There are Several races you can choose from. Those races are, and in the following order, half-orc, halfling, half-elf, elf, dwarf, gnome, human. Yep, those uh, are the, the base starting uh, player's handbook races. Yes, and uh, for some reason, because they apparently had not read their own game, half-orcs get plus one to strength, which I guess they thought was like, ooh, that's the most powerful thing you could give the race. Yeah. They need two minus ones to balance that shit, so they get minus one intelligence and charisma. Uh, let's see. Dwarves get plus one constitution, minus one dexterity. Elves get plus one dexterity, minus one constitution. Now, technically, this is all plus twos. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all because plus it's, twos. Because it's modifiers are going up by one or down by one, but it, you need plus two to the stat. Yeah. Uh, humans get nothing. Half-elves get nothing. And they, I mean, they get some other bonuses. Humans are probably the best race in this game because of the build requirements of developing your future class. Uh, humans get a bonus feat. Yeah, they get bonus feet, they get bonus skill points. Yeah, so a lot of the basic assumptions of building characters in this game start from human. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember all the rest of these, and they're not coming to me off the top of my head. I think gnomes are plus one dex, minus one wisdom. I don't know. Anyway, each one of them will also receive a number of benefits to being that race that you remember. So, for example, gnomes and, and uh, dwarves and stuff are going to get dark, uh, low light vision. Elves get a resistance to charm. Uh, some of them also pick up racial weapon proficiencies. Yeah, dwarves get their dwarf weapons, so you get things like the dwarven uh, axe, axe and, yeah, and then all that. Elves get longsword and longbow and, and so on. Uh, and they also get a favored class, which is really important in this game, uh, because this game is the first one to really open up multi-classing to the masses. Anyone can multi-class whenever they want by just taking a level in another class. When you're like level two and you go... You have earned enough experience for another level. You can say, instead of being a level two, a three rogue, I am a level two rogue, level one cleric. Yeah. Now, there is a penalty associated with that. If your two classes are separated by more than one level and neither of them is your favored class, then you take a minus 20 to experience until such time as those levels, 20% to experience until such time as those levels are within one of each other. Yeah. So, for example, if you're a half-orc, favored class, barbarian, and you say, fuck that, I'm a cleric, and you roll your clever cleric up to level 8, and then you go, you know what, I want levels in fighter, and you take one level in fighter, boom, minus 20% XP penalty. Yeah, it was, 
It's not the best. Now, here's a fun thing for that, John. They didn't really think all the way through this. If you want to make, say, for example, a dwarf level 10 fighter, level 8 cleric, level 6 thief, level 2 bard, and your next class you're going to do is uh, a level of rogue, you have a minus 100% XP penalty. Uh, so, is it is it cumulative, or is it, it just until it, your things are... Level your minus indeed, twenty. It is indeed cumulative. It's forty percent if you have more than if you have uh, two classes that are more than two levels apart. Sweet. So uh, so it's possible to build a character who can no longer gain experience. Nice. I'm sure it's house ruled or errata or something. Someone's going to send me an angry email. But well, you know, no, it's just hey man, you can't do that. No, it's it's in the book. It's, it shows you the progression lines. No, I mean as in. Yo, man, don't make a character that does this. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be Wizards of the Coast. They'll send me a letter. Hey, don't, please, please avoid doing that. That is a bad idea. <laughs> don't do it. Please, You're dumb. Please don't expose our mistakes that we made two two editions ago. Please, <laughs> please and thank you. It would ruin us as a company. Yeah, that, that's what's going to get us. That's what's finally going to bring us down. It's not going to be Magic the Gathering failing at some point in the far future. It's going to be... An old edition of Dungeons and Dragons that Mike Merles wrote. Yeah. Well, he that, didn't write we're it. Go, we're going to bring this giant down. He just This is where he was born. This is where the demon Mike Merles got his first writing credits. Uh, <laughs> gone, gone, the form of man. <laughs> Rise the demon Mike Merles. I hate warlords. <laughs> so so uh, that's how multi-classing works. Every race gets a favored class, and they don't, they don't count their favored class for whether or not they should have uh, multi-class penalties. So if you're a half-orc barbarian level 8 and you decide to get one level in cleric, you don't get the 20% XP penalty. Yeah. Humans' favorite class is any. Yep. They uh, can go ahead and be level 1 in fucking everything if they want to. It well, doesn't matter. Actually, everyone can be level 1 in everything because you're never more than one level distance between ah. them. <laughs> so there's no rule against that. Uh, each one of the classes gets one. This is one of the first major differences between 3rd and 3.5 edition. Uh, in 3rd edition, the favored class of the mighty gnome was Illusionist, an offshoot wizard variant. This was dumb, and uh, it didn't really feel all that different from wizard, and Illusionist wasn't the best thing you could be in this game anyway. So in 3.5, they uh, quote-unquote fixed it by taking a, a race, by barding the race up a little bit, by being like, these guys love barding. Instead of yeah, loving, they love putting armor on horses. That's their favorite thing. Armor on cavalry animals is all that gnomes care about. Yep, that's it. But no, they were like, oh, these guys are funny joke mans, and they're always, all the time, have a loot. Yeah, they're like, no one takes gnomes seriously anyway, so let's put them in bard. So all of a sudden, their favorite class became bard, and we got the introduction to the second most dope-ass iconic character class <laughs> of all time, Gimbal the Gnome Bard. Oh, God. Anyone will tell you that the number one most dope-ass uh, character, iconic character of all time is, of course, Hennet. That is true. Hennet, the sorcerer who is wearing a... Whose outfit is probably at least 75% belts. He's like 80% belts, and he is wearing a single chest-high boot. Yeah, just one. One chest-high boot. The other leg has a pant leg, so he's got one pant leg. Uh, no shirt, but mostly belts up all the way up his abs. Yeah. He's got Rufio hair, and he's carrying a fish spear. <laughs> Dude is dude is rad. I'm, I'm just saying it right now. As a general, honest to God, bisexual male, Hennet could get it. <laughs> also Tordek, but that's because Tordek's a, t a straight up badass of, of the highest order. <laughs> uh, now, the uh, the way that classes and everything worked in this, uh, outside of the whole multi-classing thing, was fairly similar to the other editions. You'd pick a class, you get a level in it, you get some bonus to your attack, you get uh, whatever you get for being that class, mm -hmm. and then you would have a progression chart for what you get later. The 
Thing is, everyone, no matter what class you were, got extra feet every three levels. Yeah, yeah. You get a feat every three levels and extra point in one of your attributes every four levels. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of some basic things that every character is always going to get no matter what. Which is, again, leads into the whole planning out your character thing because in addition to what you would get every level from your class, like if I'm a rogue, I can get things like evasion or improved evasion or backstabbing that kind yeah. of stuff yeah you're well now it's sneak attack because you Sorry. don't need to be behind someone yeah, you don't need to be behind someone and it still doesn't work on like constructs and oozes and shit yeah but there were class abilities you'd get but then everyone got access to these uh stat points and feats and things like that so everyone had a little bit more bookkeeping a little bit more uh future planning that they needed to do that'll come up in skill ranks as well because a second edition character would be like i have proficiency in rope use but in this game you have i have a set number of discrete ranks in rope use and i don't have to always max them out every level yeah i can i can min max and play with my my skill levels if i want to uh but yeah so each class gets a number of discrete bonuses at each level as they go up the chart some of them are super simple for example, wizards at level one get a metamagic feat and they start their spell progression. They get a new metamagic feat every four levels. Yep. And that's it. Yeah, the, the wizards, they were just like, look, you're getting a spells and you're already the most broken class in here, so you don't get a whole lot on progression. Fighters get a bonus feat at first and second level and then at fourth, sixth, and so yeah, on. Yeah, it's every two levels for every, them. Every two levels, they just get another bonus feat. So a first level human fighter will have one feat for being first level of, of anything, one feat for being a fighter, and one feat for being a human. Yep. So they can start pretty far up their own feat chain if they would like. Right up their own feat chain. <laughs> now, a lot of those big differences between 3rd and 3.5 edition will pop up in here. For example, Ranger in 3rd edition had a huge issue, which was everything good about being a Ranger you got at level 1. Yeah, level 1 for the Ranger was so front-loaded with stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to pick between a couple of feats that you'd got that were either for shooting or using two weapons. Right, because the, the Ranger has long and forever been based on Aragorn, and that one time he went swinging around with two weapons. Yeah, so you either get a couple of feats around being ambidextrous and using two-weapon fighting, or you can get, like, the long or far shot and like quick shot or whatever it yeah, I was. I think you got point blank shot and quick shot or something like that. Whatever it is, it makes you a good archer. So if you were playing to be a dual weapon fighter or a stabity rogue or an archer, the best thing you could always do was to choose level one ranger at first and then immediately multi-class out of it and never look back. Yeah. Because so staying if you were, in it didn't get you anything good. Yeah, if you were like, yo, I'm going to be uh, one of the like archer ranger builds like the crossbow range or not ranger uh rogue yeah there was a crossbow rogue build you could do that was real good but you would definitely take a level of ranger first because you would get like a couple feats out of it that's good they had a starting plus one bonus to their attack so you didn't miss out on getting a bonus to your hit they had decent enough saves you got uh the ability to pick a favored enemy. Which you just got routine bonuses to hit against forever. And you'd, you know, you'd pick one of the ones that always shows up, so you're like, uh, Goblinoids. Undead. Yeah, or Undead. Yeah. Uh, undead, are they one of the ones that are immune to crits? Because the, the funny thing about this was, you could pick the rate, you could pick things like oozes or constructs as your favorite enemy, and it didn't do anything. No, it was plus to hit. You and got damage. plus to hit, but then not, anything that was immune to crits was also immune to your favorite enemy effects. 
they would eventually go on to strip that. But it was orig- originally one of the problems with the Ranger was like, yeah, you can pick robots as the as the race you want to kill. It doesn't matter. What you did was choose something that means you get nothing. Huh. But it's an option. Stupid. Yeah, so you got just a ton of stuff at level one as a ranger, and then you just stopped. Yeah. Now, in 3.5, they tried their best to fix that by essentially hobbling the ranger. Uh, They switched them from the fighter hit die to a new ranger D8 hit points per level. Uh, You still get some stuff at first level, but it's literally just your favorite enemy. Well, yeah, the the thing is, they spaced out what you got from the Ranger a little bit more. A lot more. But they, they also gave the Ranger more stuff overall. Yes. But because much- before, in 3.0, there was not much reason to go past level 1 unless you were super excited about getting a few druid spells. Yeah, eventually you get a few crappy druid spells, and there you go. Now you're a crazy cool Ranger. In the new edition, they give them an animal companion at level, or new, the half edition, they get an animal companion at level four, they get spells faster, their their uh, new feat bonuses for uh, their abilities are stretched out a little more, but effectively, it kind of hobbled, they didn't really do this to make the ranger better, they did it to stop everyone from taking one level of ranger. Yes. They did the exact same thing to the barbarian. Yep. Uh, and then, also, they fixed up in a certain way, the druid, by, by kind of increasing various things about the druid, which led to one of the more famous jokes about druids that you'll see on the internet, the aggressively hegemonizing ursine swarm. <laughs> the idea being that an 8th level druid uh, has a pet automatically. At first level, a druid gets an animal companion, and you always choose wolf because it's got a knockdown. But you keep choosing better animal companions as you gain in levels. Around level 8, a druid should pretty much always have a brown bear for a pet. He's large, he has 27 strength, he gets three attacks around that do a ton of damage. Uh, he's not very accurate, but it's fine because you're overwhelming with the sheer number of strength and, and uh, bonuses to hit that you get from just not having to deal with the standard base attack bonus progression. Here's the thing that makes that work so well. A druid, because of shape change, is also a bear. Yeah. So every bear is better than a fighter, and every druid is two bears. <laughs> yeah, the, the druid turning into a bear and having a bear... And then getting a feat that let them cast spells while turned into a bear. Yeah. I was like, what are you? Uh, I'm a better fighter, also spells. I am two bears with the ability to summon bears should the need for more bears arise. Should there should there need to be more bears, I, I have bears. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no one worry about the number of bears I have. I don't think this was the intent when they were trying to fix up the druid. Well, the druid in 3.0 versus 3.5 was... Just not very good. No, he was a nature cleric with a couple of useless shapeshifts and stuff. Yeah, his spell list was pretty much awful. They created a ton of new spells, opened up the druid spell list. They really made the druid useful in 3.5. Yeah, with the idea, with the problem being that all they really did was open up shapeshift shenanigans, and shapeshifting would eventually lead to basically the downfall of this game being fun for anyone. Well, the other problem was the one feat of being able to cast while shapeshifted because mm-hmm. normally wild shape yeah yeah if you turned into a bear and you're like well i'm a badass guy it was essentially the same as doing tensor's transformation as a spell where you're like i cast this spell i turned into a badass fighter guy but i'm no longer a wizard yeah so you could do that as a druid, but as soon as they put out the feat that was, okay, you turn into a cool fighter guy, but also you are still a mage, you're like, yeah. well... It's, it's that point where you started seeing builds that were like, all right, your druid turns into a hummingbird and flies around calling lightning on people. Yeah, you could do either the, uh, I permanently stay out of combat and just nuke things build, you could do the, uh, I'm a, like, 
I'm a bear, bear that yeah. buffs myself. I'm uh, a bear with bear strength. I'm a bear that's buffed up to be an even barrier bear. I have two other bears with me, and they're very berry for bears. Yeah. All these bears are named Barry. <laughs> and Barry and they bear, are the Flash. <laughs> and Barry, Barry, and Barry the Bear are the Flash. <laughs> <laughs> One of them is my cousin, Marvin. <laughs> Marvin Bear. E. That's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so they made these minor third 3.5 edition modifications to a number of the classes. They they made it so that the paladin had the ability to summon their warhorse instead of just having it around all the time, which was nice. They adjusted the monk a bit, but it was still kind of bad. It's still crap. The monk is the the monk suffers from the fact that no matter what you do as a monk, you're always just more monk stuff. It's the closest thing to a second edition class left in this game, which is weird because the monk wasn't in second edition. Yeah, it was one of those ones where it was like, oh, if you start going down monk, you should probably just be a monk because every level it's more monk stuff. Yeah, you get more bonuses to your unarmed damage. You, you keep increasing your unarmed flurry of attacks ability. If you're going to take a monk prestige class, it had better come with standard monk upgrades every level or it's or it's awful. Yeah, I mean, the the monk stuff that you would get was basically based around unarmed damage and you couldn't wear armor or do anything. So pretty much the only thing you could multi-class into that would even remotely help would be, say, a caster of some kind, like a wizard or a sorcerer. But you're not going to have the stats. No, but that was the problem is monk was already super stat dependent to begin with. Yes, and then if you tried to class into anything that worked with Monk, it was one of the few stats you didn't have to use. Also, both Monk and Paladin have a secondary rider that says if you ever multi-class out of them, you can't come back. Yeah. So you better level up all the Monk you want before leaving, or else you're never going to get you're, you're uh, never going to get another level of Monk. Now well, they eventually go on to fix that in a number of the splat books, but we're not here to cover splat books. No, but we will anyway. Yeah. So, for <laughs> example, Forgotten Realms, one of my favorite uh, splat books for third edition, had a monk slash paladin multi-class halfling variant, where you could play as a halfling monk paladin, and it was the coolest thing you could possibly be. They both get the best possible saving throw progressions, and so does one of the halfling variants from that. So if you were like, oh, my entire character concept is I am immune to spell effects that have saving throws on them, this was the guy. Yeah. This was your number one guy. That was the only reason to be the monk, was yep. you'd go, oh, I've got a whole bunch of things that help me get like spell resistance, I've got really good saves, I can do that. But we can also talk at that point about how a lot of the abilities in these games were useless flavor. Like how the monk at level 5 gets immunity to disease. And you think, oh, that sounds rad. Oh, hang on, parentheses, not any disease that happens in this game. Yeah, it would be like, oh man, you're immune to disease, except for the diseases that are actual attacks from things. Yeah, diseases that monsters do to you, you're not immune to. You're immune to, like, mumps and shit. Yeah, you don't get the common cold, grats. Hey, look at you. You know how many times that comes up in games? Precisely once, when your DM realizes that you have that and they want you to be like, all right, fine, I guess I'll do something. Uh, everybody roll fortitude to see if you get... M malaria because you're in a swamp and your paladin gets to go I don't and then the monk's like I also am immune to my mal malaria and then the druid's like oh I tell the mosquitoes to leave me alone <laughs> and, then, and then your cleric's like oh I got it but I just immediately cure it anyway bup, 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 bup. <laughs> yep so you're immune to what would be at most a minor like short rest hindrance and it's treated like a big thing. Oh, your monk is immune to all aspects of horrible disease. But, you know, not like mummy rot or vampirism or any kind of disease that would ever actually turn up. Yeah. It's 
unfortunate and the fact that they're like oh this is a thing you get for your level this is this, this is your level. your ability this is level five for you what's a paladin get at level five a fucking magic horse oh what does oh. what does a wizard get at level five fireball third level spells in general jesus christ well, that's okay though because you're immune to weasels <laughs> man i wish i was immune to weasels <laughs> you're not immune to weasels you're immune to measles yeah i mean you should pretty much be immune to weasels anyway because you just can make them laugh oh yeah you're just like, what's up? I what? walk around and I, I have bowling balls that I, I juggle and they hit me on the head. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. And then one of these days, they're going to die laughing. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be like, don't make me laugh. And then there's going to be that. What are you these days? You're going to die laughing. And then there's going to be that scene where one of them's soul is trying to leave its body, but the body is trying to claw the soul back in there. And it's going to stay with you forever, even though it's just fucking who framed Roger Rabbit. Also, hey, did you see that uh, there was that theory that they figured out who, like what tune Judge Doom was? Oh, what specific cartoon? I think I've heard that before, but I have not heard the. There's uh, there's a poster in. uh. Marvin's office mm-hmm. of a possum that is a gangster and it's hanging upside down and it's got the red eyes that Doom has. Oh, interesting. And uh so the the whole thing is like the uh the like when the cartoon came out on the poster mm-hmm. was the year that uh Eddie's brother died. Oh. And you're like, ooh, ooh it's a, a theory. I wonder if it's just straight up told to you in the Who Framed Roger Rabbit book. I don't know. Because the Who Framed Roger Rabbit book is a completely different thing. Like, I, I've tried reading it, and it's a very basic detective novel. I was sweating bullets. Yeah, it's basically like, it's told from Eddie Valiant's point of view. Who, Roger is a lot less wi- crazy. It's it's a very different book. There's even a sequel that has nothing to do with, you know, Roger <laughs> There's Ra- a sequel, and it's called This Possum Guy Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> well, it's, called, it's something about a duck or something. So it, it was never going to get made into a movie. Yeah, it's, it's a book called Something About a Duck. Or something. <laughs> A, a Who Framed Roger Rabbit sequel, in theory only. <laughs> That's a long title. <laughs> Written by someone else. Written by Max Landis. <laughs> well, sir. <laughs> this sounds awful. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> there were a lot of weird things. Each class had a lot more going on per level, yeah. usually. Uh, normally, you'd look at, say, like, second edition uh, or, you know, before that. And your characters, unless you were a caster who was getting new levels of spells, most of the time it was just, uh, I'm slightly better at attacking. I don't really need to pick anything that I'm doing. Yeah. I just get better at whatever my thing is. So one of the big differences between second and third edition that you'll notice right away is clerics now get access to what are called domains. Domains changed the game for clerics. Very dramatically modify the way clerics were. And clerics were already kind of... You know, they call bards the second best at everything in this book, in, in 3rd edition D&D, but it's really clerics that have traditionally been the second best at everything. They, they can use good weapons, they can wear heavy armor, they can cast spells, they have good skills, they're, they're just sort of the second best at all things. Yeah. Uh, in this book, they now also get what are called domains, and domains are basically a list of bonus spells. One, they get an, an extra spell that is added to their memorization list at levels 1 through 7 of cleric spells. Or is it nine? I think this book has nine levels yeah. of cleric spells. Uh, and also, they get a, uh, a an ability. Each one of them provides either like a bonus feat or a bonus special ability uh, based on the domain you choose. So, for example, if you choose a war domain, you get nine new spells added to your memori- memorizable list that are all kind of related to war in some way. 
Yeah, so it might be like, oh, I get the there's the uh, the weapon that you can summon as a wizard spell, and yeah. you're like, oh, great, I get that spell. Now it's a cleric spell as well. And the other thing is, you always get a you can provide or you can memorize or prepare one bonus domain spell per spell list per day of adventuring. Well, basically, it's just what do you have? Uh, I have all of these spells as an extra spell per day. Yes, uh, and then. You also get like a bonus. So, like for example, the war domain will come with like a special exotic or martial weapon proficiency in the weapon of your choice. Yeah. So now instead of you can't use like bladed weapons, all you can do is use like a mace or whatever. If you go into the war domain, you get uh, proficiency and can use whatever the main weapon of your god is. So right. if I pick like cord or whatever, I can use a long sword. Or if I pick Bane, I think it's like a two-handed sword, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, if you choose Nerul, you can use that big two-handed scythe, that kind of crap. Yeah, but it, it was basically just, oh, uh, I'm going to pick a god who has war as its thing, and then I'll look through whatever the weapons associated with those gods are and pick that. But that's just one of the feats. Some of these feat lists that you can get from choosing uh, these domains, especially as you start broadening out into the splats, are ridiculously powerful. For example, if you choose the Time Domain from the Forgotten Realms expansion, you get access to Haste as one of your bonus spells, which Haste in 3rd edition D&D is the most broken spell until they fixed it in 3.5. Yes. It, it was such a ridiculous amount of action advantage that it was silly. Oh, yeah. Uh, you also, because you were a Time Wizard, you got Improved Initiative or something as your, as your bonus feat. Uh, you also could choose the Elf Domain, which gave you a ridiculously good spell roster plus a bunch of bow attacks and a bow proficiency. Yeah, so most of it was, like, picking your domain was basically get a free feat and extra spells, uh -huh. and it didn't cost you anything, because you still had your same spell progression, you still had all of your standard cleric nonsense you could do, and in 3.5, they made clerics even better, because 3.5 introduced the idea of spontaneous casting of healing spells. Uh-huh. Before, the cleric would have to say, okay, well, I have all of these spells that I could prepare, and I'm going to prepare some of them, but I have to go ahead and use some of my slots to prepare healing spells, because if I don't, then the party is going to be super pissed at me when they need healing. Yes. But now, it was, I can prepare just the best spells available for me. The best spells. Oh, I have the best spells. Uh, <laughs> no one has better spells than me. That's enough. That's enough, <laughs> and good. that is enough. That's enough, Trump, from us. So you could tape. They're yeah, done. You could prepare whatever you wanted, whatever might be good, and then if someone needed healing, you could just get rid of one of those and turn it into the equivalent level of healing. Yeah. Now, granted, that's almost even then. It's still not good enough to force clerics into healing because by choosing war domains and power domains and things like that, you could rel relatively easily make a cleric that was better at fighting than a fighter at every level. Oh, yeah. Well, their uh, their attack bonus was... Not quite a, as good. A little worse than a fighter. Yeah. But other than that, they... I mean, they could use the same weapons, wear the same armor, but they could cast spells mid-combat. They could cast spells that would buff them. So if you chose things like war domain and time domain... You could cast haste on yourself and get more attacks than a fighter did at a higher attack bonus than a fighter did by using some buff spell as well. Yeah, you get your bull strength up yeah, there and yeah, all your, that. Yeah, uh, your divine power or champion, uh, champion abilities or whatever, spells like that, that all of a sudden give you a higher base attack and more attacks than a fighter of equivalent level. Yeah. And meanwhile, you can still cast cure spells if you want to. Yep. It's, so. it's the fighter that can go out, beat face, and then if they get hurt, heal themselves. Yeah. Uh, so cleric became, especially with 
3.5, but even in the regular 3.0, finally took its place next to the wizard as being insanely powerful. Yes. Meanwhile, Fighter got some really interesting new concepts. The the Fighter class in this game, I guess we should start by talking about how base attack bonus works. Uh, In 3rd edition, everyone has a base attack bonus. It goes up by a set amount every level or every other level or something like that. With a Fighter, it's one per one. When you gain a level, you get a point of base attack. When you would have a plus six or a plus 12, or a plus 18, or whatever. As soon as you hit more than a uh, plus 5 in anything. When you hit a multiple of 6, you get an additional attack at a plus 1. So, for example, a 6-level fighter has a plus 6 slash plus 1 base attack. They have one base attack at plus 6, one base attack at plus 1. This means that fighters, because of their high base attack bonus, get more attacks than everyone else at high levels, except the other classes that also get a 1-per-1 base attack progression, like uh, Rangers and Paladins. Uh, they also get a feat every other level, which they can use to buy cool feat abilities, but the really cool ones are chains and require you to not only have high-level stats in certain things, like Whirlwind Attack, the famous one, requires dexterity, but you also need to have taken Power Attack, Improved Power Attack, Cleave. So if you want some of the really good feats, you need to spend your previous feats on earning your way up to them. And the, the thing is, you look at some of these feat chains and... You know, towards the end, you look at it and you go, oh, man, that seems like a really cool thing that I could do. But even the whirlwind attack where you just hit everything near you, mm-hmm. by the time you've spent the feats to do it and you end up getting to that point, you're like, oh, man, I, I spent all of these feats and now I can attack everyone around me once. Oh, or, or I could just, you know attack everyone around me or hit this one guy five times or do whatever. Also, by the time you're high enough level to use whirlwind attack, your enemies are either huge, so you can't attack that many of them at once, or they're all like flying or invisible or something. Oh, yeah. It's, it, you're playing linear. It, you know, not like I need to be the first to say this, because I'm not. It's been being said since 2002. The fighter is invariably linear, linear. The enemies and the wizard are invariably quadratic. Yeah. Their power level scales at a very different and very, very higher rate than your, yours does as a fighter. Uh, here's the other problem with the fighter that you'll hear people complain about regularly. Uh, a lot of the feats that a fighter can choose are basically replacing things that a, a, a fighter in second edition could just do by saying they'd like to try something. Yeah. So, for example, if you take the Sunder Armor or Sunder Weapon abilities, which are like, oh, I'm going to swing my sword in such a way as to try and break his sword. Yeah. That The fact that the feat exists means that the, the a character without that feat can't try this thing anymore. Yeah, it became a system that was very much, uh, you had to have permission to do a lot of stuff. Because uh, things like disarming, tripping, all of these different attack types were, instead of just being a cool thing you could try and do, or in the book as, if you want to try and do this, it's a whatever type of role. Yeah, it was usually, all these things existed in the game before the feats, but at a a huge penalty. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those things where you could say, yeah, I'm a wizard and I've got a staff, but if I really want to, I can try and do a trip attack. Yeah. It's just a staff. Yeah, like for example, if you're just some level one fighter without the trip ability, you can be like, well, I could swing my sword at this orc and try to kill him, or at a minus six or whatever huge penalty, I can try to trip him, which he can get a bunch of rolls to get out of, and all it does is put him on his butt with no damage. Either one takes the same amount of my action resources. This seems worthwhile. <laughs> so there was, there was a huge problem with that where the game kind of became permissive instead of uh, based on imagination or ideas. Now, it's funny because those are, all, <laughs> those are complaints you might have heard levied at other editions of this game. 
Yeah, you but might have. You might have heard. I don't know which editions of this game exactly. Who could know? Yeah, who could possibly? Same thing, for example, in the third paragraph of this book, it tells you to go get a bunch of miniatures and a map because you will need them. Yes, it does. Yeah, the third paragraph. It's, the first paragraph is an introduction. The second paragraph is a justification for why they made this instead of just keeping second edition around. The third paragraph is instructions to go get a map and miniatures because this is a map and miniatures game. Yeah, it has always been. This should not be played with theater of the mind. You goofuses. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it just happens so early in the book for the amount of people that have been arguing against that in I don't know, some other edition of some other edition of this game. Edition. Who knows? It's just hilarious. I yeah. just, just wanted to put that out there. It doesn't take very long for this book to tell you to go get some minis. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the book is divided into uh, a bunch of different sections. Mm-hmm. So you've got your character creation, you've got some equipment, and uh, the, but the big thing is, and why uh, casters get so much attention, especially in this edition, is the book is about like 300 less than 300 pages long the section on spell casting is over 100 pages that includes the spells and the huge section on how spell casting works yeah and this is basically over half of the the or about a third of the book is given over to spells and the section on combat is like 20 pages right. maybe yeah maybe and and a lot of that includes, oh, by the way, we actually have a question on that from a listener that I think we should probably cover. Oh, do we? Yeah, we do. Uh, let's see. It was from, oh gosh, here it is, uh, from at J underscore Liska. Uh-huh. Uh, J underscore Liska on Twitter. And he says, I just want you to read all of the grapple rules verbatim. Well, that that seems like it would take a long time, probably about seven and a half-ish minutes, yeah. and be pointless. That would be a pointless and colossal waste of time, J underscore Liska. And you know what? I don't think we're going to do it. It just seems like... A, but you know what we did do instead, just for you, is I went on YouTube and I did a little like Googling around, and I found an old instructional video that explains grappling in 3rd edition D&D. Uh, and we're just going to play that instead, because honestly, we don't want to. So, uh, you know, if, for example, you think that a long, belabored bit that uh, sounds like an old 60s radio joke is boring for you, you should skip about seven and a half minutes ahead now. Yeah, they're about. The Dungeons & Dragons series, presented by Wizco. Lessons in Battle 17, Grappling, Pinning, and You. Brought to you by Haven Cigarettes. Haven, a city of flavor. Grappling means wrestling and struggling hand-to-hand. It's tricky to perform, but sometimes you want to pin foes instead of killing them, and sometimes you have no choice in the matter. For monsters, grappling can mean trapping you in a toothy maw, the purple worm's favorite tactic, or holding you down so it can chew you up, the dire lion's trick. Grapple checks. Repeatedly in a grapple, you'll need to make opposed grapple checks against an opponent. A grapple check is something like a melee attack roll, Your attack bonus on a grapple check is base attack bonus plus strength modifier plus special size modifier. The special size modifier for a grapple check is as follows. Colossal plus 16. Gargantuan plus 12. Huge plus 8. Large plus 4. Medium size plus 0. Small minus 4. Tiny minus 8. Diminutive minus 12. Fine minus 16. 
Use this number in place of the normal size modifier you use when making an attack roll. Starting a grapple. To start a grapple, you first need to grab and hold your target. Attempting to start a grapple is the equivalent of making a melee attack. If you get multiple attacks in a round, you can attempt to start a grapple multiple times. At successively lower base attack bonuses, a monk can use his unarmed attack rate of attacks per round while grappling. Attack of Opportunity You provoke an attack of opportunity from the target you are trying to grapple. If the attack of opportunity deals you damage, you fail to start the grapple. Certain monsters that grapple do not provoke attacks of opportunity when they attempt to start a grapple. Grab You make a melee touch attack to grab the target. If you fail to hit the target, you fail to start the grapple. Hold Make an opposed grapple check. If you succeed, you have started the grapple, and you deal damage to the target as if with an unarmed strike. If you lose, you fail to start the grapple. You automatically lose an attempt to hold if the target is two or more size categories larger than you are, but you can still make an attempt to grab such a target if that's all you want to do. Move in. To maintain the grapple, you must move into the target's space. Moving, as normal, provokes attacks of opportunity from threatening enemies, but not from your target. Grappling. You and your target are now grappling. Joining a grapple. If your target is already grappling someone else, then you can use an attack to start a grapple, as above, except that the target doesn't get an attack of opportunity against you, and your grab automatically succeeds. You still have to make a successful opposed grapple check to deal damage and move in to be part of the grapple. If you're grappling. When you are grappling, regardless of who started the grapple, you can make an opposed grapple check as an attack. If you win, you can do the following. Damage your opponent. You deal damage as with an unarmed strike. 1d3 points for medium-sized attackers or 1d2 points for small attackers plus strength modifiers. If you want to deal normal damage, you suffer a minus 4 penalty on your grapple check. Exception. Monks deal more damage on an unarmed strike than other characters, and the damage is normal. However, they can choose to deal their damage as subdual damage when grappling without paying the usual minus 4 penalty for changing normal damage to subdual damage. See Dealing Subdual Damage, page 135. Pin. You hold your opponent immobile for one round. If you get multiple attacks, you can use subsequent attacks to damage your opponent. You can't use a weapon on a pinned character or attempt to damage or pin a second opponent while holding a pin on the first. While you're pinned, opponents other than the one pinning you get a plus four bonus on attack rolls against you. But you're not helpless. Break another's pin. You can break the hold that an opponent has over an ally. Escape. You can escape the grapple. You can take whatever movement you get. If more than one opponent is grappling you, your grapple check result has to beat all their check results to escape. Opponents don't have to try and hold you if they don't want to. If you're pinned. When an opponent has pinned you, you are held immobile, but not helpless, for one round. You can make an opposed grapple check as a melee attack. If you win, you escape the pin, but you're still grappling. Other grappling options. In addition to making opposed grapple checks, you have a few other options while grappling. Weapons. You can attack with a light weapon while grappling, but not while pinned or pinning. You can't attack with two weapons while grappling. Spells. 
you can attempt to cast a spell while grappling or even while pinned. Providing its casting time is no more than one action, it has no somatic components, and you have in hand any material components or focuses you might need. Any spell that requires precise and careful action, such as drawing a circle with powdered silver for protection from evil, is impossible to cast while grappling or being pinned. If the spell is one that you can cast while grappling, you still have to make a concentration check, DC 20 plus spell level, or lose the spell. Wriggle Free. You can make an escape artist check, opposed by your opponent's grapple check, to get out of a grapple or out of being pinned, so that you're just being grappled. Doing so counts as a standard action. If you escape a grapple, you can also move in the same round. Multiple Grapplers. Several combatants can be in a single grapple. Up to four combatants can grapple a single opponent in a given round. Creatures that are one size category smaller than you count for half. Creatures that are one size category larger than you count double. And creatures two or more size categories larger count quadruple. For example, if you're medium sized, eight goblins, four orcs, two ogres, or a single hill giant could grapple you. In the same way, four goblins, counting as two opponents, plus one ogre, counting as two opponents, could grapple you. Additional enemies can aid their friends with the aid another action. See page 135. Grappling Consequences While you're grappling, your ability to attack others and defend yourself is limited. No threatened area. You don't threaten any area while grappling. No dexterity bonus. You lose your dexterity bonus to AC, if you have one, against opponents you aren't grappling. You can still use it against opponents you are grappling. This concludes Lessons in Battle 17, Grappling, Pinning, and You. Your instructor will now guide you through a discussion regarding grappling, improper urges, and the Communist Party. When complete, you will begin Lesson 18, Dual Wielding, American Tradition or Red Temptation. Brought to you by Haven Cigarettes, the only cigarette endorsed by Senator Joseph McCarthy, Haven Cigarettes. Smoke up. We'll know if you don't. Okay, at un- J underscore Liska, I hope that'll work for you in lieu of actually just reading the entire grappling subsystem set verbatim. Will, there, that, will that be okay? I, I hope so. I hope it will be, because Lord knows I'm not putting any more effort into it than that. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, little things you can do in this combat section that's only four or five pages long. But meanwhile, spellcasting gets a huge amount of complicated information, most of it related, uh, related to something that I'm going to go ahead and say here, I played a lot of 3rd edition D&D, and I know oh, you, yeah. you did oh, as I well. Did. So much of this. How many times do you think you ever, at, when playing a spellcaster, made an actual concentration check the way the book suggests? Uh, about as many times as the monk had to worry about getting diseases, which is to say, at some point, your DM goes, you know, you've got like... 14 ranks in concentration because it's one of the four skills you give a shit about as a spellcaster. Uh, all right, you're you're in an earthquake and you're trying to cast a spell. Roll concentration and you roll and you get like you know your plus 14 ranks. Like, I got a 32. Okay, well you needed a 15, so great. Yeah, you sure did it. 
Because most of these checks are like, are you in a boat or being bounced or lightly jostled around? Are you on a bouncy ride? Are you on a fun bouncy ride? Are you at a bachelor party and two of your bros are shaking you vigorously while saying, this guy. Uh, this guy. This guy right here. And you're tr- and G- gentlemen, to- I, I'm trying to cast a spell. He's trying to spell. That's so this guy. Uh, this guy. This guy's always trying to cast a spell. <laughs> please please stop jostling me. All right. We're going to start tossing you. This guy. Oh, God. <laughs> So when that's happening, you have to make a DC 10 plus the level of the spell spell check to avoid this happening. Now, if you are a wizard, you probably have a 17 or 18 intelligence. And if you are a wizard, you have definitely put all four of your starting level one ranks into your spellcasting ability. Uh, That means you probably have about plus seven to plus eight versus concentration checks. So when you are first level, if two of your buddies are shaking you and saying this guy, then uh, you have a DC 11 check to make, which with a plus eight against your DC 11 check means you will six, you will fail on a three or lower, uh, which is what about a 15 to 17 percent chance. Yeah, it's it's not likely. And the the problem with concentration is there aren't a lot of spells that took more than one round because a lot of it was like, oh, if someone hits you while you're casting the spell, then a thing will happen. Except like 95% of spells in the book were, oh, you just cast a spell on your turn. Yeah, casting time, one action. And of those that weren't, you didn't remember, and you cast them in one action anyway. Let's be honest. Everyone, just take a moment right now. Let's all drop our walls. Let's let's take a knee. Let's let's spin this chair around, flip this hat around, and let's wrap. And let's be honest with each other. Let's be real for just a minute. You don't know how long it takes to cast any of these fucking spells. Every one of them is, when it's your turn, you cast this spell. Yeah, let just, me just let me just get real with you for a second and talk to you about the love of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ loves casting spells. <laughs> he does it all the time. Water to wine, casting it. One action. Water walking, one action. One action. Turning a, bunch, a, a couple of fish into a whole bunch of fish, one action. Oh, yeah. Raising a dude from the dead, one action. One single solitary action. All right, that's enough being real. I think, right. I think we can all go back to being fake and behind our carefully contrived walls, and I'm going to spin this chair back around and sit like a straight dude who's kind of a little uh, on edge. <laughs> a little on edge. Now then, if you'll turn your books to page 44. Uh, the, the weird thing with that as well, with the concentration checks, is there's, a, like the grapple checks, it's given several pages worth of information, and it, it doesn't matter. No one's ever grappled anyone. Or if they do, it turns into a clusterfuck immediately, because as you might have noticed in the instructional video, everyone ends up grappling everyone else. Yeah, you just get into this weird grapple conga line, and then... It all occupies one square, and the next thing you know, it's just a big old fraught party. Yeah, every, everyone's just rubbing up against everyone else. Yeah, it's like, oh, you guys have been attacked by six cock-rub warriors. <laughs> Cock rub warriors. Is that a prestige class? Or? I think it's just an enemy type. <laughs> yeah, so a couple of cock rub warriors come out, and they've got the essence of maleness, and they've spent all night in the woods charging up their crystals, <laughs> and they're going to deploy them against you, brother. That pure male energy that only comes when two cock rub warriors get into it. That fierceness. Cock rub warriors, come out and play. <laughs> Uh, sorry, everybody. So, sorry, everyone. You didn't need to hear that. <laughs> that was fucked up. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's a lot of weird, like, corner case rules in this mm-hmm. that I, I honestly, I don't think anyone's given a shit about. And, of course, we're going to get people who are like, oh, well, we had to do it all the time. My DM was obsessed with them. And that's great. 
You've just gone the opposite direction of a GM saw a rule and immediately latched onto it. It's the same thing like uh, there are always environmental rules in games that basically never come up unless one of your guys is like, uh, you know what? You've actually been in a blizzard for three days. Maybe I'll have you roll constitution or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing you get from all these corner case rules is an interesting thing about third edition. With so many eyes on it for so long because of the OGL, this whole kind of culture of treating the game as physics emerged, not just among fans, but also among people who were writing splats and books for it. One of the questions we got from Twitter was from at Pope Guilty, and at Pope Guilty wanted us to talk a little bit about the rules as physics crap that originated out of third edition, so thanks to you. So here's here's <laughs> well, just a few of the fun examples. Well, I mean, just, you know, as we had said before, the the fact that this game was so ridiculously well-known with everyone, every rule got scrutinized. All of them. So let's, I'm going to start by talking about the peasant railgun. Oh, the peasant railgun. So the peasant railgun takes into account the fact that it, it is your character has you know a standard action they can use every round to make an attack. They have a move action they can use every round to take a move. And they have free actions. And free actions are things you can do instantaneously as often as you would like for free. They include things like talking to people or... Uh, Picking up or, or dropping a weapon. Well, one of the things that's a free action is handing someone in an adjacent square something. So yep. anyone within about 5 to 10 feet of you, you can hand them something as a free action. Now, what this means is that if you have a line of, of uh, peasants standing 10 feet apart, they can teleport things from one end to the other instantaneously. Yeah, because it's a free action and all of it is happening on the same combat round, uh, within that you know three-second interval... You can have however long of a chain of peasants you've got, they can pass one thing to the other person basically instantaneously, which means uh, people were like, oh man, you just give a rock to one of them, and then it travels instantaneously down the line, and you have the last peasant throw it at someone, and the momentum of going that fast would kill a thing, except... except <laughs> this game doesn't have rules for momentum, so... The rock travels down this thing at a far above light speed and arrives and immediately drops into the, the square of the last peasant because there's no momentum behind it and a peasant can't throw a rock very far. Yeah, it goes like faster than light down this row of peasants and then a peasant throws a rock and it does like a D2 damage. Yep. Now, let's say that just being able to send mail by peasant at instantaneous speeds isn't quite enough for you. You instead would like to travel at instantaneous speeds as far as you like. Well, that's fine. Just get a row of fence posts, as long as the peasants are, and on each post of the fence, put a saddle. Because mounting or dismounting a horse is a free action. Yep, and you can do that from a square away. Yes. So what you do is, you have some enterprising person, the Elon Musk of the fantasy world, mm -hmm. gets a fence. The fence goes from one city to the next. Every uh, ten feet, you have a saddle. And what a person does is get on a saddle, get off the saddle, get on the next saddle, get off that saddle, get on the next saddle, get off that saddle. And you do this down the line. And because it's a free action, you essentially just teleport teleport down the line. But if you're looking at it, it looks amazing. Because yeah. it's a dude just jumping on saddles and jumping off of them for like miles. For, for hundreds of miles at instantaneous speed. Yeah. So It's so just this little bouncing so up and down. I mean, granted, any DM with any kind of, you know, clout whatsoever is going to say, no, that's stupid, but rules as written is, is kind of 
Well, Rules is Written is pretty much born in third edition. Oh, yeah. This is this is where it came from. The most recent one I've been really enjoying is that a toad should starve to death. Yes. Because a toad, as a, as a fine creature, has no attacks that do any damage. And therefore, they have no way of killing a fly, no matter how few hit points a fly might have. Yes, they cannot eat anything. Because they don't have a swallow hole attack, in addition to not having a bite attack. Correct. So, there's all, so Rules is Physics kind of got its start here in 3rd edition D&D and immediately became kind of a huge running gag that the internet has greatly enjoyed. Well, I, I it's, would... it's the, the classic drowning as stabilization rule of <laughs> That's right. if you begin to drown, as soon as the drowning starts, you are set to zero hit points, which means if someone has been knocked below zero, you can stabilize them by drowning them. Yes, if someone is bleeding out, if you throw them into a pool... They will reset from negative seven hit points to zero hit points, and on the next round, well, no, they'll actually the problem die is, in a couple of turns of drowning. The problem with drowning is everyone said, oh, well, that's great. I can stabilize them immediately and then do a, a medical check to then bring them to, like, one hit point, and it'll be fine, but being at zero means you're pretty much just stabilized. Mm -hmm. However, there were no rules on how to stop drowning. So everyone said as soon as you start drowning, you cannot stop. That's correct. Getting out of water does not include a rule that says this will also stop you from drowning. Yeah, it's just once you start to drown, these are the rules for it, but it doesn't say this is how you stop drowning. Yeah, there's no rule for if you are pulled out of the water or given air or taught to breathe water at any point, you stop drowning. So there's no way to. So there's no stabilization. You'll die in a couple of minutes. Yeah, it's, it's great. So... There's a lot of little things like that that are born out of people looking at common sense rules written by well-meaning authors and dramatically shifting them in insane ways. For example, did you know that because there's a penalty for seeing things that are very far away from you that is progressive, it rapidly becomes impossible to see the moon? Now, many people would say, oh, but the moon is so large, shouldn't you be able to see it anyway to offset that penalty? Because it comes with a bonus, because the moon is unbelievably huge, it should have a correspondingly huge bon or, or a modifier to that chance to be seen. A huge bonus to, to your chance to see it. it. It does, in fact. That is a rule, and that rule is calculatable, uh, calculable. That said, it does not overcome the penalty based on the diff distance of the moon, which means that most people on, on a Dungeons & Dragons 3rd edition world have never seen and do not believe in the moon. They don't know that the sun exists either. Honestly, there's a point in time where it is bright out, and then all of a sudden, the sky turns into just pure black. Yes, there's nothing in the sky that's visible uh, whatsoever, which means there's literally no light at all at night for, for the average peasant. Oh, there's, there's light, because the light will hit you. You just can't tell where it's coming from. Well, there's no rules for light traveling in this game. <laughs> So, no, I don't think that happens. I think it's just pitch dark at night. No, man. That's why so many races have infravision. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> so, so that's a fun thing. Uh, you know, there's also the famous, what they call the Jumplomancer. Uh, this is a, a bard that takes an ability that lets them translate any skill bonus in exchange for diplomacy uh, whenever when they would like to use or a diplomacy check. Or bluff. They use this coupled with the fact that jump is a skill in this game, and because people need to be able to cartoonishly jump massive distances because of spells, uh, jump can get absurd bonuses. Where yeah, you, you, you can, can cast a spell that gives you like a plus 30 to your jump it skill. Is, it is actually not difficult or outside the realm of possibility to get over plus 800 to jump. Yeah. Enabling your character to do these seven-mile-long jumps. So that means that you simply walk into town, jump straight up several miles, <laughs> land... 
say, I am the moon. And everyone goes, well, I've never seen the moon, so sure. That is correct. You will convince everyone in town that you're the moon because of your unbelievable jumping capabilities. Yeah. Or you, you go to court, you, you meet the king, you jump up, land, and you're like, yo, king, you need to go to war with this dude. And he's like, you're goddamn right I do. Look at those mad ups. <laughs> that guy's got ups. <laughs> Rally the troops for that man's mad ups. Dude, that guy can dunk on anyone. We ride at first light. <laughs> so, yeah, there are a lot of these kind of rules as physics things that have emerged from this game. I, I think another one that I would love to talk about for hours and hours, but I just want to briefly mention, is skeleton computing. Yeah, the idea of the skeleton computer is... You get a bunch of skeletons together. Yeah, you have a couple of people in your party who have the capability to animate dead or summon skeletons. And what you do is you you get them into uh, groups and pretty much using a binary system of if this skeleton's hand is up, it's a one. If it's down, it's a zero. Mm -hmm. And they will, depending on input, either raise or lower their hands. Correct. Which means that if you have a sufficiently large enough number of skeletons or a sufficiently large enough amount of time, you can use them to replicate the functions of a calculator or a computer exactly. Yeah. Now, in the realm of negative energy, where it's the far... Plane, yeah. Yeah, the plane of negative energy, where it's far easier to control and create undead, you can pretty much turn that entire plane into a supercomputer, and some necromancer out there, like Vecna essentially can run windows on skeletons. The one thing you're kind of missing is a graphic user interface element. So you're kind of working with skeleton punch cards. Yeah. But on the other hand, that's a pretty useful capability. I mean, heck, you could even have an entire banks of skeletons that are dedicated to being long-term memory storage. Yeah. So, so yeah, skeleton computers, a thing that was born in 3rd edition D&D, and the proud tradition lives on to 5th edition. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's just some of the many fun things you could do with this dumbass game. Uh, we've had a few people who mentioned that they would really like to hear us discuss the horrible spells in the game. Uh, let's see. I think there's uh, that's from at open underscore sketchbook, who we would remember is the person who designed the the uh, system mastery uh, role playing game for us. The one that, you know, the, the lasers and feelings hack that's a system yes. mastery game. So that's uh, that's from uh, open underscore sketchbook on Twitter. And they just said rip into some of the worst spells in this game. You got to just really dig in there. Well, the classic 3.0 example, as we mentioned, is haste. Yes. Haste gave you an additional partial action. Yeah. Partial actions were uh, in this edition. You actually had a standard action that included your ability to move as an action. So a partial action was you could pick two either do your attack or your move, but what it meant was you'd do a standard action, you'd run up to a guy, you do all of your attacks, so let's say you're a fighter that has three attacks, you do all three attacks, if you're hasted, you then use your partial action to do all three attacks again. Or, if you're a wizard, you use your partial action to cast yet another spell. Correct. So... <laughs> So rapidly, that one becomes unfair. Another one that was super unfair and famous for it was Polymorph. Uh, it was called Baleful Polymorph in 3.5, but initially it just let you take the form of any other creature, which, you know, that the, the, the classic idea is you turn your opponent into a mouse, so you turn someone on your team into an ogre, so they rush into battle with a great high strength score. Yeah. And they tried to make this work by saying, you know, you can turn into this thing, but you keep your own intelligence and you can't use spell-like abilities that are cast by that creature. So if you turn into an ogre mage, you can't cast the spells the ogre mage knows. Exactly. Like, if you turn into a beholder, you can't start shooting eye lasers. That said, by choosing specifically the phrase spell-like, they, they left open doors to 
natural abilities, supernatural abilities, and general abilities that don't have a descriptor for the, on the monster. So, for example, uh, if there is a monster out there that grants wishes, such as a, 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 a gene or something like that, that does not say it's a spell-like ability specifically, you can get that power. Well, yeah, I mean, the classic thing of, say, fire breathing from a dragon isn't a spell-like ability, it's a natural ability for Correct. Them. So that means that by digging around through enough monster classes, you can eventually end up with a character who's like, my ability is to set anyone who I meet's strength to, the, to my strength. Just, it's not a special ability, it doesn't, it's not a temporary benefit to them, it's not that they have a competence bonus to their strength, it just puts their strength to my strength. If my strength is 50 and I cast it on them, their strength is 50. Done. Yeah. Well, and you can use that. This is the pun pun story, by the way. If you're curious about the famous pun pun the kobold, this uses a species called the, the Saruk, which is like a kind of lizard mage sort of thing, that can cast this ability on anyone who has the scaly kind effect, including kobolds, which is why Pun Pun, famously, is a kobold. Yes. Uh, you can use that plus some monk ability called uh, the Bellflower Tattoo, which allows you to temporarily apply one of your, your stat bonuses to one of your other stats to raise your all of your stats with this Saruk ability and the spell and uh, polymorphing to unbelievably high levels. Just just arbitrary infinite high numbers. Yeah, so you set all of your stats to arbitrarily high numbers. Mm -hmm. You also end up getting to a point where you have all the spells you could ever want. Mm -hmm. He knows every spell of every class. Yes. Uh, and, and he is level 5. This is a level 5 kobold. Yeah, and the kobold eventually the... The outcome of all of this dumb shit is he simultaneously threatens every square in the universe. Yes. And uh, can instantly kill with no save basically anyone. Uh, he is able to also threaten squares interdimensionally mm -hmm. and has perfect unerring knowledge of like everything and can see everything. So if you want a final answer for how ridiculous this is, that 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 all sounds horrible, of course. Pun pun the cobalt. The creator never intended him to be playable. He's just a It's a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment in terms of how much can we break this game. But here's the fun thing. Less than like ten like five years ago, someone came up with a counter argument to disprove pun pun as a viable concept. Yeah. It's based on variable amounts of hit of hit die stacking and how much you're allowed to stack hit dice, and whether or not that's an allowable function. Now, someone has also already come up with a workaround to the hit dice issue, which requires Pun Pun to be like an 11th level human instead. But the idea that this game is so deep with arcane interactions and splat rules that years after someone invented the Pun Pun concept, someone came up with a counter-disproving thing. To, it's like the friggin' theory of evolution. Oh, yeah. No, the... The amount of time that people have spent on weird theories for this game and then disproving those theories and arguing them, like, the fact that this game has mechanics as physics isn't just because they're trying to apply the game mechanics to a real-world idea. It's that there are theories and physics ideas that people will argue about in this game. <laughs> it's true. For, forever. It's just there is so much there because of all the splat books that there's just sort of this infinite field of raw math to throw at each other. It's a, it's a wonderful place to pretend to be like Leibniz and just run around being like, and therefore I find that the calculus is impossible. <laughs> CF this elf I have developed. <laughs> I'm not sure why I'm giving him a pompous British accent. He was Austrian. I know. But it's you know, weird. What you going to do? <laughs> so, uh, okay, next person who had something they wanted to hear about is at Wolves Are Cool. That's, uh, that's Cat Cool. 
uh, the the DM or the ST, if, if you will, of the uh, famous campaign Star Wars podcast. Yeah. And she wanted to hear about the, the one level of barbarian and other correct builds that became second nature in the system after a while. Well, we did already go over uh, well, why you did that with Ranger. Ranger 1, yeah. The other thing, I think the important thing to talk about here is uh, spell progression levels. Yeah, there were... Uh, I mean, we can get into it with the uh, the prestige classes as I, well. I think it's there's a few people who asked us to talk about the horrible nature of prestige classes. Yeah, and I think that's this is definitely the right place to stick that. So, in addition to the fact that, uh, as we mentioned, you pretty much had to map out your character from level one if you wanted to get into a prestige class because you would look at something like shadow dancer or dwarven defender or whatever and go, okay, well, because I want to be this. I have to be this race, I have to be this class, I have to get these skills, these feats, I have to do this, I have to do that, and then I'll qualify for whatever. Mm -hmm. The difficulty of getting into them would make you think, oh man, these have got to be amazing. And certain ones were five levels, some were ten levels. Uh The ten level ones were basically meant to be like, this pretty much becomes your character as soon as you get it. The five level ones were usually like, here's a couple cool powers you'll pick up on the way of making your character. So one of the things that these started introducing for the spellcasting classes was plus one level of your basic spellcasting ability. So for example, if you're like, oh, my character is one of the worst prestige classes ever, the candle caster. I can cast wizard spells by ca- by creating candles that when I burn them will cast the wizard spell. At level one of candle caster, you get plus one level of wizard for the purposes of casting wizard spells. Yeah, so it was to appease the casters who were like, look, I'm level 8, I'm going into this class, if I start gaining levels as a whatever, a, you know, a sage or a candle True caster or whatever, or whatever you want to be, then am I now restarting it? Do I get level 1 spells as per this prestige class, or do I keep going on whatever? Yeah, they they I, all just say, okay, you keep going as a cleric or a yeah, wizard or whatever. Because if they don't, if you're an 8th level wizard and you're like, oh, look at this, uh, super wizard, what a great prestige class. Oh, but but when I get my first level in it, I don't get 5th level wizard spells, which I would have gotten had I just become a ninth level wizard. This class is butt grade crap. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, the problem with that is a lot of the classes tried to get over this but still be balanced by saying, oh, every other level of whatever this caster class is, you get another level of casting as if you were a wizard of the same level. So at level f- level 8, you take a level in Candle Wizard. I don't remember whether Candle Wizard has full base attack or base spell progression or not, and who gives a shit? I didn't read all the splats. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so... At level, I'll become a ninth level wizard in terms of casting at level at level uh, One character level that. nine. Now at character level ten, when I get two levels of Candlecaster, I will not get another level of spells. Yeah, and it was supposed to be an offset for the fact that you were getting things like bonuses. the the true necromancer was you had to be a uh, a arcane and divine caster that. Uh, both had specializations in necromancy, mm-hmm. and I was like, now you are the true necromancer. You didn't get spell progression every level, though. What you got was, you know, shitty bonuses to, oh, you're the the undead you make have slightly more hit points, and you get a plus two bonus to control them. You slowly become more of a tree. Yeah, there's a lot of casting classes that just gave you essentially feats. Yeah. And it was like, I'm going to give up an entire level of spell progression for a feat. The problem was, nothing is worth an entire level of spell progression. No. And, 
prestige classes, a lot of them, came with full spell progression. It immediately became the low bar of prestige classes. If this class is for wizards and does not come with full spell progression, it is a terrible prestige class. Full stop. Yeah, even if you look at it and you go, all right, I have a sorcerer, and my entire concept for sorcerer is... Uh, I get my power from a dragon, and here's the Sorcerer Dragon Caster Prestige class. If you look at it and it goes, oh, you get like a fire breath, and you get scales, so you get a higher AC, and you, you get, get some wings, yeah. some wingalings, but you only get every other level for spellcasting. You're like, oh, well, it went with my idea, but I don't care. Hard pass. No, thank you. So they kind of fucked that up right away with, with intru- immediately introducing classes that had full casting progression. Uh, including one that the, the Mystic Theurge, which is probably the most famous prestige class in the book. Uh, Mystic Theurge is full spellcasting progression at every level for both wizard and cleric at the same time. Yeah, I very famously back in the day, my yeah, main character. Yes, yeah. it's a super famous. Thing everyone knows. Everyone in the world knows. Now about everyone this thing knows John about did. my characters. Yeah. John, uh, by the way, this is a probably guys probably didn't know this. This is Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah, everyone knows that me, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, yeah, back of home in, improvement fame, back in my home improvement days, was uh, playing D anD D. Yeah, yeah, and it was the most famous thing about you at the time. Oh yeah, so everyone was like, "Oh man, JTT, he's all about that D anD D. He's just letters. He's just letters. That's all he's into." Teen, teen heartthrob and interesting '90s hair wearer, Jonathan Taylor Thomas has a lot of opinions about playing clerics and wizards at the same time. I really do, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I played uh, for both 2nd edition and 3rd edition D&D, I played a wizard cleric. Mm-hmm. They were garbage in 2nd ed. It was just a stupid thing to do. Yes. And in 3rd ed, it was also a stupid thing to do. And then as soon as the Mystic Theurge came out, you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm a god. Yeah, I can cast every spell forever. This is great. Yay! So, <laughs> famously. I was famous. It's famous. It's like It's like... If you had a restaurant, you called it Famous John's Original Ribs. Is the only time I'd allow you to describe yourself as famous in some capacity without ripping into you for it. We have like 20,000 listeners, and I don't care. We're still not famous. A <laughs> hundred episodes, and we're still not famous. Not famous. Not famous enough. I'm, yeah, I'm like Shia LaBeouf. I'm wearing a big thing that says not famous. And I'm, I'm running from my life from Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> yeah, from actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh, my God, John. We are, we are nearly at an hour and a half. And uh, I, I feel like we owe it to the fine people who are our fans and listeners and subscribers to finish off this list of questions at least a little bit. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's the 100th episode. Whatever, we can go super long. I don't care. Yeah, it's just going to be a big one. Sorry, everybody. So let's see. Uh, oh, hey, uh, James D. What's the motto? I don't know. What's the motto with you? <laughs> he doesn't let us say that. I'm kidding. He does. Our contract doesn't say anything. Yeah. It, it does say a lot about his big swanging Diamato. <laughs> so he actually had something for us. Uh, him and a couple other folks wanted to hear about the Book of Vile Darkness and the Book of Erotic Fantasy and a bunch of other shit that we didn't read because they forgot how this show works, didn't they? Yeah. Then we just talk about the book, not the splats. I mean, granted, we have spent like the past hour talking about prestige classes, which are not even mentioned in the core D&D book. No, it's one of those sad things where if you were in a game and you were like, oh, I'm going to make uh, I'm gonna make a fighter and I'm a guy. And then, you know, several months later, some splat comes out. And you're like, oh, dude, that prestige class is perfect for what my thought was. But all of a sudden you look at it and you're like, wait a minute, I need a bunch of ranks in survival. I have zero ranks in that. How many levels is it going to take for me to get up to seven ranks? God damn it. Yeah, you can read the basic core D&D book and not know that prestige classes exist. 
Yeah. That's a, that's a very possible thing you could do. So Book of Vile Darkness was full of extra evil things you could do. It was gross and disgusting. And we will cover it someday, I promise, but it's not going to be today. Same thing with the Book of Erotic Fantasy, except I don't promise we'll cover it. Yeah, the I mean, like we were saying before, the fact that Wizards opened up this uh, game license to anyone mm-hmm. meant that you got people who were like, oh, you're going to give me access to all of your rules? Well, I'm going to fatal this up a little then. With the problem being that there were kind of like morality rules for how gross you could make your D&D supplement. So there's a lot of usage of like manhood and bosoms and so on in those books to try and keep it PG, you know? Yeah. They're just, they're they're creepier than they would be if they were just like, your dick gets bigger. <laughs> it is pretty creepy when my dick gets bigger. I'll that's let the, you know that. That's the dick gets bigger prestige class, by the way. <laughs> That's the in, <laughs> the entire inspirational series of YouTube videos for young men out there. <laughs> Don't worry. Dick gets bigger. <laughs> Hi, are you a two-year-old and you're worried about your tiny little baby cherub dick? It gets bigger. Don't worry. Dick gets bigger. <laughs> Christ. That's what we're doing. That's what we need to use our 100th episode for is to briefly a make dick fun of gets the, bigger the It joke. Gets Better queer video series. Yeah, that's what we need to do. That's what we into. needed to do. Listen, folks, I'm a bisexual man. It gets better. You, eventually, you become a big dumb nerd with a podcast. And your dick gets bigger. And your dick gets bigger. <laughs> it's, it's great all around. Bigger and bigger, and then you die. <laughs> yep. Soon it consumes you and the world, and you die. Soon your dick is opening for Van Halen. Then your dick is in Van Halen. Soon your dick does not return Spielberg's phone calls. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's see. Uh, Another question about a book that we haven't read came to us from at Delethiel, who says how Tome of Battle made marshals by making them do things other than stab poorly, but no one took it to the table because, and he quotes, it was weeaboo fighting magic. Yeah, a lot of the complaints that got leveled at 4th Eds... And late 3rd Edition. And late 3rd Editions, mostly the Tome of Battles, uh, martial classes, was there was this purist notion of all that a martial class should do is take a weapon and try to hit someone else with that weapon. Yeah, and if they want to, at a significant penalty, they may try to push it or knock it down or something. Yeah. But as soon as you start getting into things where it's like, oh, I have abilities that aren't a thing that a guy could just do. Or even if they are, it's things a super a super fighter could do. Like, you know how wizards can cast magic spells? Well, what if fighters could fly through the air and hit things with their swords like you see in your favorite media things? In your favorite media things. In your favorite media things. Like in your weeaboo TV shows or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, you know, it, it was essentially like, trying to put a little, like... Wuja or action film stuff where the protagonists of these are doing stuff you could not do as a human, mm-hmm. but it was still within the realm of you know this is a fighting person. Yeah, and yeah, like, so like the guy, the guy in Berserk, guts or whatever. Like if you wanted to play as the big dude from Berserk who's running around with his unbelievably huge sword, or Final Fantasy VII, if you wanted to be able to do a limit break. Yeah. If you're like, oh, dude, I'm going to do Hocto Slash. That's going to be so cool. Or I'll do Climb Hazard or whatever. Cool, super swordy cuts where I go to the air. And the problem is they were immediately de- uh, denigrated by people who were used to D&D for the past 25 years. Yeah, as like, soon as it was, oh, you can do magic as a fighter? Well, why aren't you just a spellcaster? Well, bully to the idea of not doing that. 
Yeah. Boo to you, good sir, <laughs> and your fighter who can do things. I boo the Tome of Battle. I boo the Tome of Battle as his podcast co-host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it got a lot of flack for what I'm going to say is no good reason, because the idea that a fighter could do something rad is cool is cool and good and i'm like dude you're you're already in a world where uh monks exist a guy who gets so much like physical training that he can suddenly start flying and punching like holes in walls no with his fists and whatever fall damage uh is treated as a creature from another plane of existence at the end yeah the last level of monk is you are now an outsider and you are treated as if you are from another dimension yeah, you have damage resistance. You've got all this crazy shit going on. But the idea that a fighter could do a jump attack was a little rankly to a lot of the uh, the purists of D&D. Yeah, someone was like, wait a minute, you could jump 15 feet and then hit a guy? I don't think so. That seems a little fake. Anyway, I cast Evard's Black Tentacles. That seems good. Anyway, my paladin is going to smite evil and then ride off on a flying silver horse. <laughs> <laughs> Not me, man. Whenever I had a paladin, I always took a war horse. That was a donkey. <laughs> really? I did. And Why don't you talk about it? <laughs> oh, you think I should? I think it might be time for an episode of Donkey Talk. Gonna ride that donkey donkey down to the honky tonky. It's gonna get funky funky. Gonna ride that donkey donkey down to the honky tonky. It's gonna get funky funky. Welcome to Donkey Talk, the show where we talk about donkeys and nothing but donkeys, except for mules. We also talk about mules. A bit. A little bit. Just just not much. I'm, I'm Jeff, your host of Donkey Talk. Over there is John, an actual donkey. Yes. Yeah. I am. Yeah. A, a donkey who talks and sounds exactly like a normal human. Yeah. I mean, only because of the translator, though. That's correct. Yeah. We've got a translator hanging from his mighty donkey neck. Yes. So, like I was saying before the break, yes, I actually did take a war donkey as my paladin in the one time I ever played a paladin in 3rd edition, but that's because, as previously mentioned, I was playing a paladin monk donkey paladin. I was playing a, a halfling paladin monk, using Forgotten Realms rules to make him a little better. So a donkey was small enough that my halfling could theoretically ride it. So he was this, uh, this super Don Quixote character who just sort of blundered his way through the world, uh, thinking he was an unbelievable hero, but really, between Monk and Paladin, you don't get a lot of you know, good offense. He, he wasn't very dangerous. He couldn't punch very hard. What he was, was immune to everything. And what he was, was riding the finest steed in all the land. A Ex donkey. A donkey. So he took a donkey, which I think I had him just named like Sancho Panda or something. I, I wasn't very good at knowing my actual Quixote storylines. <laughs> um, and... He rode a mighty donkey, a, a donkey that eventually picked up the uh, the celestial template. Ah, yes. And then became a celestial donkey. One and, of our heavenly donkey brethren. Yeah, one of the most heavenly of all possible donkeys. A donkey above reproach, as it were. Yeah, as it were. Finest of the donkeys. And uh, that's all. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Donkey Talk. Hee-haw. Gonna ride that donkey donkey down to the honky tonky. It's gonna get funky, funky. Ow, ow. Gonna ride that donkey, donkey down to the honky tonky. It's gonna get funky, funky. Ow, ow. 
Welcome back. That, that We're back on System Mastery now. This is no longer an episode of Donkey Talk. Good, great. We are here. <laughs> All right, next question from a listener. Let's see. Uh, that was, oh, my God. You remember when that was going to be a question from James and then it never turned into one? Yeah, hey, you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, He said something about how in the Complete Warrior book, uh, you got unbelievable abilities to hit, uh, or improvised weapons became so powerful that you would be a total fool to choose a normal weapon. Mm-hmm. I, which just reminds me that we haven't even talked about spiked chains yet, or the bag of rats. Oh my god, third edition could take forever. Yeah, no, third edition because of all of these splats and tomes and nonsense. There, it wasn't just that. Oh man, there's a build you can do, or there's a couple. There are so many stupid tricks you can do, and some of them are just stupid tricks. Like, oh, I can trip people forever. Yeah, okay, the, the, the spike chain build is I can trip people within two squares of me, no matter what, every time they try to stand up. Yeah, it's it's a stupid trick you can do, and it's not game-breaking, but it is just ridiculous when you try to do it. No, because there are certain spells that are so powerful that they are game-breaking, and it does. It, it, most spellcasters would look at a guy who's like, aha, I can trip everyone within 20 feet of me all the time. Trip, trip, trip. And they're like, that is very cute. You put a lot of effort into getting to that level. You have earned the power you have. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to kill all those people you're treating or tripping with no saving throw and at no loss to me. Yeah. The fact that this game went to a, you've still got all these saver suck or saver die things. Third edition also got rid of a lot of the uh, remaining leftover baggage of wizards have some restrictions. And we've talked about this before, that wizards are sort of a, a progression in an interesting direction. In the very first D&D, there were all these things that kept them from being especially powerful, but also kind of weren't especially fun to keep track of. When you were like, my character knows one spell. It's, I don't know, read magic. And maybe someday I'll learn another one. And they're all going to be really hard to cast and expensive. And I'll die if anyone looks at me. Yeah. And the big thing was you also didn't get to pick your spells. Yes. You were given spells by the GM. And he got to decide what you'd find. Mm Because most of the time you were just getting them off of scrolls or spell books you'd get. So by the time you get to 3rd edition D&D... Every single one of those old restrictions on wizards is effectively removed. The only thing that's really left is their low base attack progression and their low hit points. And you, you know, still spells, can't wear heavy armor. Spells still have like, oh, you need to talk while you're doing this, or it takes a component. But there were, of course, because there are so many feats and things like that, you could meta magic around it, mm-hmm. or you could get feats that were things. Like, oh, I don't need material components for this spell or whatever. One of the most famous goofy things about 3rd edition is the uh, spell component pouch is assumed to contain every spell component that is negligible in price. Unless it has a specific gold piece value, the spell component pouch that every first level wizard starts with has every item in it that you could possibly need to cast a, a spell that doesn't have a gold piece cost. Which means it has an infinite number of spiders in there. Yeah, every bag carried by a wizard has an infinite number of spiders and an infinite number of chickens in it. Yay! You never starve when you've got that bag. That was one of the restrictions on a wizard. The idea that you're, well, granted, the things you were carrying around were stupid, and in most cases they were just jokes. Oh, yeah, you're like, oh, I can just keep pulling out lumps of bat guano. I got all this bat poop in here. I got tiny paper cones so I can make my voice louder. Eh, get it? It's a little megaphone. Eh. Eh. But at least you had to have the fucking thing. In this edition, it's, it's oh, no, your character just has an unlimited river of chickens if he needs it. 
A river of chickens run ran through it. That's my favorite Brad Pitt movie. A river of chickens runs through it. <laughs> oh, that's weird, because one of my favorite movies is Mystic Chicken River. <laughs> Old man, Chicken River. <laughs> and my favorite dead Hollywood actor, of course, is Chicken River Phoenix. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. And joke complete. I, you think we're there yet? I think we're done. I think we are done with the Chicken River joke. No, Old Chicken River is a song. is still pretty great. <laughs> oh, man. You know who I loved is the old comedian Joan Chicken Rivers. <laughs> God damn it. I don't know why we're doing this. We're so... <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think we're, we're done. We're fucking two hours in and we're making Chicken River jokes. <laughs> We've got a ways to go for two hours. <laughs> All right. So, so Yeah. Uh, I think I gotta want to go through two more questions from or suggestions from listeners here. Cool. First one's from at Ark in Black, and he says Regdar might deserve bringing up. Now Regdar, we we did actually get into Regdar a few times before. Most recently in Movie Mastery, oddly enough. Yes, because he's the main character of a terrible, terrible uh, early two thousands DVD called Scourge of Worlds that you should not check out. No, and it's. Uh, Regdar and a couple of the other main uh, iconic characters, but the big thing with Regdar, uh, for anyone that didn't listen to that or doesn't know about Regdar in general, is he was one of the iconic fighters in 3rd edition. Now, you may ask, one of, because every other class but fighter only has one iconic. The iconic wizard is Melee, the iconic bard is Gimbal. Uh, the one exception to this is Wizard, because they had the iconic Gnome Illusionist as well, who's yeah. a, technically a different class. Uh, but, you know, the iconic cleric is Jozan. There's just one, with the exception of Tordek the Dwarf and Regdar the Human, for fighters. Now, the reason that exists is mostly uh, the suits butting in and going, look, we need more humans. We need more white male humans. We need more guys art of whom we can put on the cover of books. Yeah, we need more guys who look like the demographic we believe is going to be buying this. Yes. And so Regdar was born. And if you've looked at the art for Regdar, who you can find in the third edition D&D book, right there on the second page of the fighter descriptions after you see Tordek. Tordek, by the way, the world's greatest badass dwarf. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you go through the book and you see him straight up just fighting a dragon while in his mouth. Yes, Tordek is just an eternal superhero. Regdar is a light green human who is carrying two two-handed weapons, one in each hand, like a big dumb idiot. Yep, and he runs around doing nothing. Now, normally, if you see Regdar in art, it's either that picture of Regdar, where he's standing there with two weapons, or he is dead. Yeah, the artists and creators, the writers, hated so much the fact that Regdar was pushed upon them as a thing that from then on, most of the art that shows Regdar is him either being stabbed or chased or his Stepped dead body. On, yeah. uh, you'll find his helmet somewhere with like a blood streak near it. Yes, Mangled Regdar is pretty much one of the main characters of 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons. Now, when we first talked about this on Movie Mastery, we managed to draw a few cockroaches out of the woodwork who were like, well, what do you care if there's a white human? Shouldn't there be at least one? Well, that's the thing. There's two. Not counting Regdar, there's two. Yep. Hennet the Sorcerer and Jozan the Cleric are both white male humans. We already had two. Yes, indeed we did. <laughs> so, what is Regdar? Completely unnecessary. Yeah, but because it's the fighter class, they're like, well, we need, we need the iconic main sort of class in this. 
to be a white dude. Yep, a big white dude. And that's how Regdar came into existence. And I swear to this day, I still see him as a half-orc because he is very light green. Man, but then you look at the picture of the iconic half-orc in there. Good old Krusk. And you're like, oh, no, wait, no, he isn't. Because they, they straight up turn half-orcs into just orcs. Yeah, orcs are straight up monsters. Or half-orcs are straight up monsters in this book. They have no nose. They have an enormously huge tusky mouth. They are oh, yeah. very gray. Oh, that, that said, Krusk has ten times the charisma of fucking Ragdar. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd way rather hang out with Krusk. You know, just a quiet evening alone. <laughs> if you make that Paramour joke about Krusk one more time, <laughs> I am turning this podcast around, mister. Hey, that's what you get when you let your heart win. <laughs> oh, my God. Stop making Paramour uh, jokes. Uh, 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 but that's, that's my business. I'm in misery. Ugh, for fuck's sake. I'm going to do a Tom Petty series at some point, <laughs> sir. I, it's going to go on for about 20 minutes because I know every Tom Petty song there is. Yeah, I think I've already listed all of the Paramore songs I know, so we're done here. Yeah, you've got nothing, babe, <laughs> when I get started on Tom Petty songs. Uh, Eventually, I'll be so mad that you won't come around here no more. <laughs> uh, all right, so so that's Ragdar. The, he, he constantly gets killed, and it's just a dopey mistake to, that he was even in here in the first place. Yeah, and even to this day, you'll still find art for later editions like 4th Ed, 5th Ed, that will still reference Regdar. Yeah, you'll still find Regdar's bloody helmet. As a, it, that's how he came into existence. Now, the last thing I really wanted to talk about is a, que- or a suggestion we got from at Vexing Thoughts, and his suggestion is real simple. It's... How 3rd Edition wasn't that bad slash broken if you played with normal people uh, and stayed off of the boards where people did weird stuff in a DM-less vacuum. Now, that much is true. And we have said this time and again. Whenever we talk about 4th Ed, 3rd Ed, stuff like that, the Edition Wars, we always bring up, look, we played a shitload of this game. I played way more 3rd Edition than I ever did 4th Edition. And it was never like we were sitting there going... Oh boy, everything's going off the rails at all times. I'm I mean, playing Pun Pun the Cobalt. Yeah, even with me playing a Mystic Theurge, which was technically supposed to be one of the best things, mostly I just ran around doing low-level spells and being an idiot. Yeah, one of my favorite characters I ever made in 3rd edition was a character, it was a sorcerer, which is a bad choice in the first place, who every single level of his spells was metamagic versions of Magic Missile. He only cast Magic Missile. Yeah, he was he was just a turret. He was a living turret with ma- with every metamagic feat dedicated to Magic Missile, and he just walked around going, Magic Missile, Magic Missile, that's my answer to everything. Yeah. That was my dwarf, uh, Big Fat Stinky Pete. Yeah, with his... Uh, his <laughs> toad Familiar. His Toad Familiar. Little Fat Stinky Pete. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of my favorite characters I've ever made. He's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> so it's true. You can play this game without messing with all these optimization boards and unbelievable splat books and what have you and have a good time. I mean, that being said, this, this is being brought to our attention because people think that because John and I are 4th edition enjoyers that we've picked a side in a war... Yeah. And there isn't a war. That's all fucking internet bullshit. These are two different editions of a game, and you that can play no both. longer come out. There's yeah. no war now. There's nothing. There's nothing left. It's the Shattered Ruins. We like both of these games. That being said, you can have a good time playing any of the hundred games we've covered if you have a good DM, regular old friends, and you're just having fun. Every single one of them. Yes, you can have a good time playing Numenon. Yeah. I mean, at this point... The argument, the war between 3rd Ed and 4th Ed is basically Whigs versus Tories. No one gives a shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I do, sir, because as you see, as a know-nothing, <laughs> I find that the trade of silver... 
Yeah. No, it it does not matter. If you liked one of those, you're playing them. If you didn't, you aren't. Who cares? Yeah. So, yes, it's true. You can have a fine time playing 3rd edition D&D if you don't use all the, coo- the cuckoo banana splats. Hell, you can have a fine time playing D&D if you do use all the cuckoo banana splats. Because ultimately, and if there's any message we hope we've managed to impart over 100 years of this. Yeah, 100 years of this. 100 years of RickandMorty.com. <laughs> All 100 years. Rick and Morty. uh, We're going to go on adventures. This is our darkest year. (laughs) Get over it, famous John. (laughs) Oh, oh, geez, Jeff. I don't know if I can do that. (laughs) So over 100 episodes, if there's anything we've imported uh, imparted to you, uh, there's not really... Role-playing games could definitely stand to be better, and they should strive to be better. They shouldn't be sexist, racist garbage. The rules don't need to be unnecessarily complicated for no reason, but none of that is going to stop you, the player, from having a good time if a good time is what you want to have with a book that you own. Third edition D&D is no different. You can have a fun time playing this with your friends. Yeah, I mean, if you get together and you're like, oh, we've got a wizard and we've got a fighter and we've got a rogue and... We've got a cleric, and yeah, the wizard can do some stupid things if he wants to, but mostly we're just having fun adventuring around. Yeah, obviously you're going to have a good time. The fact that the rules aren't amazingly well-balanced isn't going to stop you when you've got something like, as you mentioned, a DM that doesn't just go ahead and be like, yeah, sure, you want to do a fucking instant transportation across the country on saddles on a fence? Go for it! Sounds like fun! No, instead, the only reason you usually have problems at a table is because someone's being a real Frankenstein's dad about something. Oh, yeah. Someone's like, hey, man, uh, I just want to really get into my character, and I think I think what I need is uh, more bonuses, and if you could just give me some better magical equipment, that what would I be need, great. What I need is a whole bunch of templates layered onto my character at no additional cost. What I need is just... Just a whole lot of alcohol. Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. That's Frankenstein's dad's monster. That's the Frankenstein's dad's monster. Alcoholism. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we did all the good old in-jokes, John. We got got the most. We didn't do a hot dog question, and you know what? We're out of time, so here we go. John, what is your favorite thing about third edition Dungeons & Dragons? Oh, it's all those hot dogs. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's the riding pony you can get as a halfling. Or the riding dog that there's art of in the book. Dog spines aren't meant to carry a halfling around. I don't care if a halfling is light. You shouldn't put little. You shouldn't put a baby on your dog, for example. Well, these are fantasy dogs. These oh, are fantasy, war dogs. They're war dogs that have a spine that bends the other way so that they work like horses. And they yeah, and, and we let them slip. All right, that's fine. These dogs of war. Okay, fine. I thought there was going to be another Paramore reference. No. That's why I was shooting you the side eye. <laughs> Give me that side eye. No, I'm not throwing more Paramore at you. I figured you might have graduated from Paranor to some fucking Evanescence song I don't know or something. <laughs> Uh, no, I really put a tourniquet on that. I'm not doing any of those. <laughs> Fair enough. Wait. Wait, hold on. Was hold that on. Evanescence? Is that an Evanescence reference? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> See, what's your favorite thing about 3rd Edition D&D? Uh, well, best thing about 3rd Edition D&D to me was sort of also the worst was that it got so many people to look at role-playing. The fact that the OGL came out and everyone had access to these rules meant all of a sudden people could really start looking at it as a thing they could do if they weren't rule inclined yeah like any creator who's like man i have this awesome idea for a setting but i just i'm not math inclined i don't really want to work on a system that much you could slap an ogl on there and go ahead and write your own uh world setting 
and then say, okay, great, it uses D&D, whatever. Yeah. So you had people that were able to engage with it a lot more, and because, as I mentioned at the beginning, with the internet being able to get a lot of people with message boards talking about things, all of these splats, I think Third Ed was really the the biggest boost of people being interested in RPGs. Yeah, I think I could go with that, sure. So, best thing about Third Ed for you? So, my answer is going to have a lot to do with something that we can't show you on the podcast. Which and is- it's, it's Tor Deck. <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on just a second, John, uh, because it's the art. Uh, a lot of what Third Edition did for art was it introduced kind of the dungeon punk concept that kind of defines D&D now, where all the armor looks like Diablo gear. It's got all kinds of cool spikies all over it, and the armors are always like half chain, half plate, and with co- cool ornate designs to them, and the shields are all weirdly shaped, and the swords are crazy. It was the first time where the gear didn't look... You go back to, like, second edition D&D and look at a guy in full armor, and he's wearing that stupid cone helmet with the nose guard on it. And yeah, that's real, but it's stupid, and no one cares. No one wants that. Yeah, I mean, going through this book, you had the full art in there. You also had these sketches, and the way that the uh, pages were colored and laid out made it look like, on a lot of them, that it was like someone's book that was doing a like one of those nature books where they go out and sketch all yeah. the things they find. And here's the second aspect of that same thing. Uh, in second edition D&D, the most commonly referenced picture of a woman in the entire book is the weird tiny lady with her lizard tail that a giant fat genie is looking at on in, in, near the bard section. <laughs> in this one, women start taking critical important roles. The iconic paladin, monk, druid, wizard uh, are all women. Uh, that's like Ember and Miali. Women start taking impre- incredibly dynamic roles. Uh, there are black people in this book. Uh, Ember, the monk, is a black woman. Yeah. Uh, so all of a sudden, you start seeing a lot more diversity in the book, and there is no mention of it anywhere. There's no. They don't start. They don't have an entire paragraph ex- explaining why they're going to use he him in the book. Yes. You don't get that smug paragraph. I mean, granted, they still use he him, but at least the paragraph's not there. <laughs> uh, this is the first book where they were like, look. We want our players to come from a diverse audience, and we want them to see diverse characters in the book for inspiration. Now, there are some missteps. It's true. Uh, when Monty Cook was talking about this, he was saying, oh, yeah, we wanted pictures of, of humans of all races, but dwarves should just be dwarves. Well, that was kind of a mistake, and they fixed it later. They, you start seeing more pictures of like ethnically diverse dwarves in future editions and books. Yeah. But this book really started stepping that up. This is also the first D&D where there's never a reference to different stats for different genders. Yeah, there's never a reference to DM's pizza. <laughs> there is. It's true, actually. There isn't. I know. <laughs> Which, wow, that's that's a good one to bring back up after. Let's do a Jeff's Pizza Watch on. <laughs> so, no, but uh, the this book has a good ethnic uh, ethnic diversity to it that's actually very refreshing. And it was nice that D and D took that step all the way back in two thousand one. Yeah. So that's going to be my favorite thing about third edition Dungeons and Dragons is is those first steps towards. Kind of ethnic diversity and racial and, and gender diversity that are so important. Good. So, uh, John, uh, what would you say is your least favorite thing about Dungeons and Dragons Third Edition or Dungeons and Dragons Three Point Five, if you are so inclined? Uh, I mean, basically, this is going to apply to the whole Three Point X. It is the entire idea that you had to plan your character out, that you had to go from first level up through at least seventh or eighth. You needed to know what you were doing every level, what feat you were going to take, what skill points you were going to put in what skills, how you were going to build your character. You needed to know what weapons you were going to use because 
uh, even if you were thinking, well, I'll just get a long sword for now, you might need to go buy like a falchion because you were going to get a specific build that needed it. Yeah. It was so much more bookkeeping that even people who enjoy that, which I do enjoy that, and I know uh, our good friend Brian is super into doing that as well. Same it's, here. It's just a fun thing to go like, oh, let me get a thought experiment for how this guy should turn out. But it also meant that it was one of the first times in a role-playing game for me where the characters didn't develop organically. There was no point where I was going to be like, oh, I was playing this character, and it turns out I had originally thought he was going to be like a super into books, and he was going to be a sagely type. But as we've played the game, I've noticed that he tends to run into combat. He's kind of a weird hothead, things like that. And what I might have done in a different edition or a different game is, say, turn him into a, a more fire-based mage and make him actually about the aspects that have come into play. But if I started the game and went, yeah, but I've already built this guy up through these first three or four levels to be a sage prestige class, at this point, I can't. I'm I'm on the rails. Yes, yeah. The rails were established very early on in this game. So I I feel like you end up hampering yourself a lot with that I'm going to plan out my character from 1 to 20. Uh, and even if you have fun doing it, the fact that a lot of people would get married to that idea of doing it and sticking to it, uh, I think just hampers the role-playing aspect of it a lot. Yeah. So I'll, I'll go ahead and take that. What do you have for your least? I would say in a similar vein, I think my least favorite thing about this game is that it is so well-documented and optimized and appreciated by the community that it's hard to go find a game where you can be like, I don't know, I'll take a level in Monk. That sounds fun. Without having a bunch of people go, no, do not. No, that is that is improper play. Yeah, that uh, is very true. You could take Ranger 1 Rogue X. That is the correct answer to an improperly asked question. The correct answer is Wizard. <laughs> yeah. the I mean, I agree with you. The, the fact that this has been so well-tread and just put under a microscope for so long, even if you wanted to do something like that, coming to the game as someone who has played it before, you're still going to have that in the back of your mind where you're like, oh, I'm not even thinking, oh, I should take a level of Monk for fun because in the back of my mind, I'm already like going into my thing, planned out what I should be doing. There exactly. is a, a should to and things. And also, I have... I want to say, just me personally, I have like seven friends I can think of by name off the top of my head who tell me that this is their favorite edition of D&D because in this edition, wizards could be more imaginative than ever before. They could always they could play as toolkits and always have an answer to every problem. And I'm always like, you're not imaginative, you just have access to a diverse power set. Yeah, it's not so much that, oh man, I'm, I'm super creative because... I can prepare Knock to get around a locked door. I'm like, no, it's that's what Lock does. That's what Knock does. Yeah, you weren't creative. You're just having more tools. Yeah, instead of everything looking like a nail because all you have is a hammer. Yeah. you own a hardware store. Yeah, a kid with a Swiss Army knife is not more imaginative than a kid with a normal knife. It's it's uh, it, it's just such a weird thing that it, there's sort of this culture of I'm smart enough to have figured out that Wizard is the good class in this game. Yeah, it's like yeah, duh. Of course. <laughs> Good job on figuring that out. Now learn how to play the worst classes in the game because they're more fun. Or they're not, really. They're not even more fun. They're just the same. Yep. So It's just you don't have access to as many goofy things. That said, John, would you play 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons? I mean, obviously, I would play it. It wouldn't be my first choice, but it is 
after a hundred episodes of reviewing games, it is very obviously not going to be my last. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so you know, it's it is a game that, as we said before, if you've got a DM that's not going to let you get away with stupid bullshit, if you've got a group that you enjoy, and everyone goes into it understanding that you're just here to have a good time, not necessarily to break this game then yeah, you can have a good time playing D&D. It's the old pajamas of, D- of uh, role-playing games. You yeah. can play it because it's comfortable. You, it, I mean, even more than any other edition, including 4th, which I enjoy more than 3rd. Same but here. 3rd is one of those things where I'm like, if you wanted me to make a character and start playing 3rd Ed, I can do that immediately without any prep. Yeah, yeah. That said, no bonus content because, oh, and I'm kidding. We're going to do it. <laughs> no bonus content. This extra hour of podcast <laughs> is your bonus. <laughs> it's going to be more than an hour. I, But uh, no, I'm kidding. We'll do it. But that said, there's nothing that much fun about making a first edition D&D character for me anymore. <laughs> That's why we're going to make a level 20 D&D character. No, hard pass. <laughs> uh, you don't, you don't want to plot out your level 20 D&D character? I'm going to make a guy with ten level or two levels each in ten classes. Good. That's me. All right, so uh, <laughs> that's me, the guy who can't gain experience anymore. <laughs> no, he can, because all of his levels are within one or two levels of each other. <laughs> it's fine. He can it's do it. You can do that all day. All day. All Every God, day. If one of those was fourth level, he couldn't gain experience anymore. Yeah. All right, so uh, so yeah, I, I would play this because it's comfortable and it's easy to play. And I, I mean, and like the, the one guy was pointing out, you don't need to optimize this game to play it. You can just play it. Yep. So, I think that moves us on to uh, housekeeping, and then we're done here. Yes, we are. So, folks, thank you so much for your patience your listening pa- to this. Oh, no one's still listening. We're talking <laughs> to, like, two fans right now. Yeah, I'm talking to my mom right now. Hi, Mom. <laughs> I need to do laundry. John, John's mom. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking to my sister. Hey, Jen. Hey, Jen, come down and visit sometime. Oh, huh? that'd be great. I think I've met you once, and I'd like to see you again. Come on down. Were you the one who was at karaoke that one time? Yes, yeah, she was. Okay, then I've met you. Hi. Hi, Jen. Yeah, there we go. Also, hi, Neil. I know you're also listening. <laughs> my, my sister's son. <laughs> All right, so uh, thanks so much for supporting us through 100 goddamn episodes of this, and what I'm pretty sure at the moment adds up to more than 260 hours of total combined podcasting. Jesus Christ, we we need to stop doing this. <laughs> We have more than three weeks of done of total podcasting, I, I think. It, no, it's more than two weeks now of total. You could sit there and listen to us straight for two weeks. No, you couldn't. <laughs> no one could. <laughs> no one could do that. That's how you go mad. <laughs> that that way lights madness. So th- I'm just saying thank you so much for supporting us. It's, it's, a, it's a big, huge thing. Uh, we, I, honestly, this is the longest I've ever held one job. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly... Episode 25 was the longest I've ever held one job. So let's <laughs> let's be clear here. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to get too maudlin and heartfelt, but thank you guys so much. And if you're new and you still want to support us, even though you just listened to two hours of this, you can do that at, pat- at patreon.com slash system mastery. Yep. We've, we just, are, we've got so much stuff yeah, that we are we planning to do. All these other shows. We are actively writing our own role-playing game based on a joke from 80 episodes ago. I'm <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so... So, by all means, come on by. Give us your support. We just did announce a new goal. We're currently at seven twenty-five or something. I think in yeah, terms thank, of dollars. Thank you, by the way, supporters. Yeah, for getting us over the seven hundred and the four hundred supporter goal. Yeah, it's huge. It's an enormous amount of money, and I, I still can't believe it's happening. The fact that we have that many people that actually give a shit and want to support us is amazing to me. Mind-boggling. Uh, so. 
the new goal is if we ever hit $1,000 per episode, we will take our other show that's becoming increasingly popular, Expounded Universe, where we make fun of old Star Wars books, and we'll switch it from being every two weeks to every week. Yeah, we'll finally have a weekly show. Yes, the first weekly System Mastery show ever will be Expounded Universe, our Star Wars book review. Yep. Uh, so if you want to support support us and you aren't already, and that's a good argument for you, and you're still listening to this show, <laughs> <laughs> by all means, go support us. Otherwise, check out all our shows at SystemMasteryPodcast.com or System Mastery on Facebook, Gmail, Twitter, or Reddit. And, uh, John, you got anything else you want to say? Uh, I Again, I just want to say thank you so much to all the listeners. The fact that we've gotten to 100 episodes, and during that time we've had essentially nothing but love from our listeners has been amazing. Yeah, it's been really nice. So until the next hundo, I've been Jeff, that's been John. Thanks for listening, and have a good week. 